Hey everybody, it's Hit Rewind. This is the Video Games of 1983 segment. And uh, frankly, I'm a, I'm a little beat, so I'm going to let John take over. Actually, you've been kind of taking over on this one of all of our segments. I think this is the one where you're like, yeah, I got this down. Yep, got all the research and uh, got the knowledge and hopefully got the entertainment. Yeah, I, uh, it's a weird day, dude. Weird day. It's uh, working retail during this has been bananas, so my brain hurts and uh, my body hurts. And uh... okay, let's go. <laughs> but, all right, so uh, this year is going to be a little bit interesting. Not as many notable games to talk about, but there is an event that happened. Right. I uh, was looking through this in the dearth of like, hey, that's a classic. It wasn't really there. I was a little disappointed. And of course, you and I were too young to really experience the crash. I had no idea it was the thing until I got to like, uh, you know, when G4 did a special on it. By the way, did you see G4's coming back? Yeah. Ooh, yeah. I, did, I did see that, yeah. Nice. Well, since I've been talking about uh, how much revenue games have been bringing in, arcades and stuff have been bringing in over these uh, these few years. Uh, around this time, game revenue was around two point nine billion dollars, which in today's money is like seven point four four billion. Wow! And so, yeah, it's still you know they were making some making some money. Uh, and eighty three is also the uh, year, and I'm pretty sure we mentioned this before, but uh, the Donkey Kong, uh, Universal's case against Donkey Kong happened this year in 83, where Universal claimed that Donkey Kong was infringing on their copyright on King Kong until a judge found out that the rights had actually passed into public domain. So Universal ended up having to pay Nintendo $1.8 million in damages. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, this is, I think, the same year, or maybe it was the year before, they had another battle... Uh, there was a movie from Italy called Great White, and it was the same exact plot as Jaws. And they, they were successful in suing that out of existence, but uh, I think they got kind of cocky and didn't, uh, didn't line their ducks up correctly before they decided to sue over this one. Yeah, and that's, and that's the funniest thing. Is just you would think that before you bring a case to court, you'd... You know, cross the T's and dot you know dot the I's and make sure that you ain't gonna look like a bunch of assholes uh, <laughs> coming out of it. Yeah, because I don't. I, that's confusing because Dino De Laurentiis had the rights from RKO for the '76 adaptation, but you say it's public domain. I've seen other things that use the word Kong, and I think the word Kong is what's public domain, but the script itself yeah. isn't. The, the actual idea of the. The giant monkey, uh, you know, idea is still I, that is still owned by uh, by Universal, but the name Kong is not is not a copywritten t uh, word. Right. It's it's kind of the same way with vampires. You can do well. No, Dracula is you. You can do Dracula, but you can't call it Bram Stoker's Dracula, I believe, because of the family owning the rights, and then Universal or somebody owns it because of that. I don't know. Something like that. How yeah, did we end up on this tangent? We're talking about video games. What the hell? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, yeah. Okay. okay. Let, let's focus. Uh, couple, couple of the noble games that came out this year was uh, Zevius, which is this uh, vertical uh, scrolling shooter where you're going and blowing up aliens who have invaded Earth and they've set up bases and stuff. 
I I remember this game very very clearly, and it very much informs a lot of uh, a lot of games that came afterward, like the design of the of the alien ships and stuff like that. But it's funny is this game was originally themed around the Vietnam War. Really? Which when you when you start the game off, you're in this kind of jungle area and stuff, and it really makes sense that way that you're now in Vietnam as opposed to oh just some random area. Yeah, is this a Capcom game? I feel like I had this in a collection with Pac-Man. I th- yeah, I think it is. I okay. believe it is. And uh, but it's like one of the things that uh, as as we change this thing around. They ended up uh, making the enemies. Uh, they, they're now all homages to like Alien and Battlestar Galactica, and there's even some Star Wars thrown in. A lot of Battlestar Galactica's, as I recall, in that one. You know, that's the the first game I ever owned was Battlestar Galactica, but it wasn't really a video game. Video game. It was like one of those little hand light up things. You know, before Game and Watch, it was one that uh, oh, yeah. you had to control your ship on a little stick. And you can move it with a little knob or whatever, and then lit up. Um, what's the sh- the bad guy ship? Cylons. Um, yeah, the Cylons. They would come at you at a high speed, and they would change the the pace to throw you off. And then if you get it, uh, if you hit one, you would lose points or whatever. It wasn't really a video game, but it was like the first handheld game I ever had was that. Let's see. Now, did you ever play Spy Hunter? Oh, of course. I think everybody has played Spy Hunter. Yes, that that came out this in '83, and you know, vertical scrolling vehicle, vehicular combat game. You got your little uh, technologically advanced interceptor, and you're going around and destroying all these cars and stuff that are uh, that they're chasing you and stuff. Because you got all these like uh, onboard spy weapons. It basically it was supposed to be a Bond game, and it's very obvious when you. Uh, when you see what you're doing with this car and like machine guns and oil slicks yeah, and yeah. all that kind of stuff, but yeah. then you know it, they didn't get the license, so you know we got the game that we got. And of course, you're able to uh, at various points of the game, you drive into a uh, into a boathouse, and then all of a sudden your car's a boat. Do you remember when they were pushing so hard to make this a movie with Dwayne Johnson and John Woo was going to direct it? I do, and I I keep hearing that they did they actually I don't think they made it with with the Rock, but uh, didn't they actually make this? They made a game and it just, of it. It's one of those like VOD. Yeah, it's like a, I thought it was like a like maybe it ended up with something like a VOD movie or something. Oh, I okay, I'm looking this up right now because I don't think it ever got made. I remember they did a game for it. Movie. Let's find out if a movie ever got yeah. made. Uh, and that's the thing. I could be 100 percent wrong. There's all these fake posters with uh, Dwayne Johnson superimposed on it. No, I never got made. Okay, okay. I th- uh, yeah, I thought I remember hearing that it that it did, but like I said, it was definitely not what we were what we were looking for. Oh man, you realize <laughs> in the two thousands we're gonna hit this like all the time. Like, oh, this piece of shit got released on twelve screens. Tekken. <laughs> oh yeah, that that garbage fire. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, also this year was Mario Brothers. So you had the old school original one where you have Mario and Luigi actually kind of doing plumbing because <laughs> they got to go and eliminate creatures that are coming out of these little pipes. Basically, you kind of like get underneath them and you knock them over and then you kick them, them off screen. 
I love this it's game. Okay. It's one of the very first yeah. Nintendo games I had played, uh, you know, for the original console, and I just I got pretty good at it. It's just a very simple like lockdown screen. What do you call those when it's just one screen you're on? There's got to be a, a name for just, it. Yeah, just I don't know. It's just it's a single screen game. I can't. Okay. Since you're not scrolling or anything, yeah. yeah it it's pretty straightforward. Uh, now everybody knows the Mario Brothers from their next adventure, but. You know, yes, they had a game. Well, obviously Mario has has shown up in a few things prior to this, but yeah, the brothers make their uh, true debut here. The bro, bro, the brothers. Dun 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 da 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 da. <laughs> Hooked on the brothers. I'm sorry, I get stuck in my head. <laughs> well, now here's I think for me the biggest game that came out in '83 is Dragon's Lair. Oh my god, so gorgeous to look at, so difficult to play. <laughs> yes, it's a uh, animation by Don Bluth. It's uh this late it's a laser disc game. You know, you play uh Dirk the Daring who must rescue the Princess Daphne from the trap filled lair of the wizard Mordrock. And it is impossible because the idea is it's a uh, basically a a, a point-and-click game, except you have a joystick, and the idea is you move the joystick according to the on-screen prompts, but you never see those things in time, so you always get to watch Dirk die a million deaths. Yep, it's so torturous. I, I played the second one in the arcade, and um, my friend Andrew, who always gave me shit for everything, I have no idea why I had such shitty friends, but he was laughing his ass off the entire time as I wasted quarter after quarter trying to figure out what the hell was going on. Yeah, anyone who says that they beat this game is a fucking liar. You know, I, I don't care. You could you could sit me in front of an arcade cabinet and beat the game in front of me, and I'll still call you a liar because this game is impossible. Yeah, it's it should have been a movie. Well, yeah, oh god, well they are. The Ryan Reynolds signed on to do a live action version of it, or do you mean as animated from Don Bluth? As the animated film at that time, it should have been an animated film. Now, have you ever have you have you ever played it at home? Like, the the disc where it lets you watch all the animated sequences instead of just playing it? No. I I have seen a the game, uh, the cutscenes animated, like, off of YouTube. But I've never played any version of it, because this game got ported a lot. It, a lot, and... a lot. It's, it's crazy how much it has, because it's been on uh, home console, of course. It was on CD, it was on DVD, it was on Blu-ray. I think they're trying to even do 4K with it. But there's an option where you can just watch the game, uh, you know, uncut. And I gotta tell you, it's not as elaborate as you think. It's only like 11 minutes of animation, and a lot of it is just flipped cells. Oh, uh, he, uh, Dirk flew this way on the, the little weird uh, seat thing, and then you just flip it around and have him go in the other direction. Yeah, it there isn't a whole heck of a lot to it, but the problem is the game was always expensive. And again, you never see those on-screen prompts in time, so it's always... You're always just seeing the death animations more than anything else. Yeah, and but it was but yeah, so, it was a... such a hit though because of that we got Space Ace, Dragon's Lair Two. Uh, was there another laser disc based game? I'm forgetting about. It was like this. Yeah, those are the two most famous uh, the, though. I'm, yeah, I, I can only think of those two, but that doesn't mean that there weren't. I mean, hell, there have been all kinds of games that have tried to, you know. You know, some of that success that uh, the Dragon Age had, uh, 
Dragon Age, Dragon Slayer had. I'm gonna look right now. Laserdisc video games. Let's see. Uh, Interactive Film was the company with in, in with uh, Don Bluth. This is back when Don Bluth first started out because he had uh, Secret of Nim. And he was having just trouble keeping the company going because Secret Nim cost too much. But Dragon's Lair kept him going for a while. Uh, Cliffhanger, which is from... Oh, oh, uh, Castle Calag... Cagli- oh, shit. Cagliostro? What's that cartoon? Cagliostro? Yeah. You know, uh, the guy. Oh, uh, the loop, the loop in the Third. Yes. Yeah, loop in the Third. So they made movie. one from that. And Bega's Battle? I've never heard of that. Badlands, Freedom Fighter, Space Ace, and Road Blaster. Wow. I haven't heard of most of those. Yeah, none of those sound familiar. But then again, anytime I think of that stuff, I always I end up going to like the full motion video games instead. So you get like Mad Dog McCree and all that kind of crap. Oh, in the nineties, yeah, when they were trying to do uh what's that one that Corey Haim was part of where it was like Night Trap, I think? Oh yeah, yeah, the the one that that uh along with Mortal Kombat ended up uh getting us uh ratings for video games yeah and that's it's all because of uh dragon's Lair being so successful these companies started doing you know testing what they could do on that format in a way also finding ways to go as cheap as they can because i mean dragon's Lair definitely would not have been cheap that even if you know, get it's not a lot of animation it's it it looks beautiful it is that's up and that had to cost a pretty penny to put together. Yeah. Did you ever see the uh, the animated TV series? No. I Honestly, I didn't even know they had one until I was starting to look up research for... Actually, it was games prior to this. We were talking about like the uh, the Starcade stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah, it, uh, it lasted one season. It has his design work, but it does not have the beautiful animation because here's the weird thing. Don Blue Studios was not involved in the actual series. It was Ruby Spears, and I'm very confused as to, oh, this, these guys created this. They're an animation studio. They're available. Why did you not hire them? Probably, actually, I would imagine it costs too much because they're going to try and do maybe level quality for yeah, TV. Maybe. And let's let's actually do, let me make this cheap and out there for every, you know, each Saturday morning. Okay, I can see that. But yeah, it's it's a hell of a lot of fun uh, to watch. It's it's a nightmare to play. Yeah. Again, we'll keep I'll keep uh, going back to the well and kicking the dead horse of this is uh, back in the day where uh, every single game was basically Dark Souls. How do you mean? And if you oh the entire the uh, the mindset of Get Good Scrub from Dark Souls, which is a difficult as hell game. That's what we grew up on. Were games that basically punished you and then laughed at you as you. Oh, failed. that's just cruel. <laughs> that's 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 what we cut our teeth on. I don't need to play play your your fancy schmancy ones these days. <laughs> okay, now I'm going to try and keep this as concise as possible because. This is the, the video game crash of 83. It's kind of, you know, there's a lot of factors that kind of went into this. But essentially, yeah, this was the quote-unquote big, catastro- big catastrophic event that hit the video game industry pretty hard. And it caused a recession, and it, well, in the industry. 
and it's basically it was due to market oversaturation of the home consoles because uh, at the time you know you had Atari, you had a television, ColecoVision, Odyssey 2, and Vectrix. Man, that's too many already. And, and then of course PC starting to take off and take away some of the the luster. Oh yeah, and it's like each of these systems had their own library of games, and of course the leader in all this was Atari. They had the largest library, so. You know, stores had limited shelf space, and with PCs becoming a thing, there wasn't going to be enough space for everybody. And then Atari also overprojected the demand, so they increased out their own output 175%. Jeez. And that was a lot of surplus. <laughs> now, at the same time, you also had uh, a growing third-party market. So you have, you know, first-party games are games basically created by Nintendo or Nintendo-owned studios for their own exclusivity. You have a second party, which are developers not owned by a platform, but essentially create platform-exclusive games. But third parties are the studios that aren't owned by anybody, it designed anything for anybody, and, you know, they're just they're contract workers. Yeah, so... With that, and then of oh, course, what? wasn't there the things? There was no lockout chip, so everybody was making a game for the system, and there was no quality control. So it was just unbelievably like, oh my god, what am I gonna do? There's too many games, and we don't know which ones are good. Exactly, because uh, uh, in '79, the first third-party software was uh, created by some former Atari dev- uh, programmers who not only wanted royalties but actual credit for what they did. How dare they! Yeah, so this became company Activision that's still around. Now, Atari went and tried to sue them to block sales and, you know, try to get a restraining order against them and failed. And so in 82, the case was finally settled with Activision, you know, agreeing to pay some royalties to Atari, which, you know, kind of seems, you know, like an ass-backwards deal, but it actually ended up legitimizing Activision as a as what they're you know what they're trying to do plus that year they released pitfall so shit you know it all kind of worked out right uh but like you were saying they're since now they're uh you have this third party uh group all these a whole bunch of these group uh these part companies were being created by venture capitalists just trying to replicate activision success and they just flooded the market with all this crap so you got really bad, you know, bad shovelware, poorly thought out licensed products. Like, you know, there was a game based off of the Journey album Escape. That sounds amazing. Must was, play it. I I remember the the ads like in comic books for that for that game. I had no idea what the hell it was, you know, referring to until literally years later, where I'm like, wait a minute, I recognize that that album cover art from a video game magazine from a from a comic book thing. and But even this way, Purina Dog Food had a tie-in video game called Chase the Chuck Wagon. I definitely remember that. Yeah, so... there, There's a lot of... You can already start seeing how this is not going to go well for anybody. And now Home Computing is also becoming a thing, as we said. And... Since there was this price war between Texas Instruments and the Commodore, the price of computing dropped so they could be uh, to a point that was 
competitive with the consoles. And since the computers had better memory, could play games and do other stuff, it basically, you kind of had something like, why am I going to pay for a console when I can get a PC with do a whole bunch of other stuff? So, start, start, you, we're starting to see this big picture now for him, huh? Yeah. Now, one thing I didn't realize, but I guess one of these other contributing factors was inflation. Oh. Because the, the cost of quarters actually ended up uh, being, uh, was reduced like a third in the early 80s. Huh. So, uh, around that time, uh, games industry petitioned uh, to have a dollar coin made uh, into the size of a quarter. Now, you'll recognize these because these were made. They're the Susan B. Anthony dollar coins. The thing is, they didn't really catch on, so that was a, <laughs> that was a big uh, screw-up and right. bad thought. I just, it's so weird because... I missed all of this. I, I just I had no idea any of this was going on, and uh, when the arcade shut down right across the, from the school, I didn't think, oh, it's because the you know the whole market just oh got oversaturated. I was just like, oh, well, I guess that's just a thing that disappeared. Whatever. Yeah, and and you, at the end of it, it's like that's that's even the biggest thing is that this wasn't an overnight thing. This happened, you know, like. 83 is kind of where everybody sees the beginning of it. But this really kind of happened over two years. So it's not only do you have, you know, this influx of uh, crap and no one's wanting to really, no one's got the shelf space to, to handle the amount of stuff being put out. You know, you basically just made a bunch of companies uh, decide, you know, stores aren't going to carry video games or if they do, they're just going to be a little tiny corner here. So, this massive influx of games has nowhere to go now. You know, a lot of companies just collapse because of that. You know, the arcades closed, many arcades closed. And this basically, yeah, just went over for, over the course of two years, we're just watching more and more of this stuff really hurt the games industry. But this did effectively allow Japan to end up becoming the saviors of the home video games in 86. Yeah, it is. It's it's kind of the end of American domination in that field. Yeah, and again, we all... Everyone makes... You know, we have the kind of the joke of it's all E.T.'s fault. And while E.T. was a garbage game... It's not just that. It, that's not the game that killed video games in 83. Right. It was just a symptom of a bigger problem. It's so weird that it bounced back, then, though. You think about that. Most industries, when they um, crash, it's hard for them to bounce back, and they did it in two years. It's That's kind of rare. Well, that was also, you know, clever thinking on Nintendo's part by making the NES a toy by packaging it with Rob. That annoying little pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, the the toy game that never worked was one of the big one of the big factors that actually saved video games. But oh man, like just the idea that 
the third-party market is really one of the things that collapsed that, and I. it's also, in a sense, one of the things that, let's jump into the future a little bit, uh, that I think also helped kill Nintendo for a little bit in the uh, late 2000s. Yeah. Because you had the Wii, the, one of the greatest, you know, most best-selling consoles of all time, and everything on it is basically shovelware. Then the Wii U! And then yet, yeah, then the Wii U, which no one, which no one knew what the hell it. Well, people who were selling it knew what it was. No one who was buying it had any idea what the hell it was. <laughs> and that tanked. <laughs> and that tanked remarkably well. Uh, it's like we we seem we seem to run into these cycles of just hey, let's go and let's go and put out something. Oh, let's flood the market with crap. Oh crap! What the hell happened? Why is why are things collapsing around us? Yeah, but Nintendo can always bounce back. Sega, for some reason, they just could never get it together. Well, Sega couldn't. Sadly, Sega lost their edge and couldn't market themselves out of a paper sack by the end of it. Because uh, I get, I understand the idea of uh, what was it? it? Was the not the Dreamcast? It was the Saturn that they released basically day and date once they uh you know it's like hey here's our new system and by the way you can buy it now and it's like no you know not giving anyone a heads up and amping up any interest in it just putting it out there and it flopped and died yeah and then being a little too forward thinking with the dreamcast and uh kind of failing on that well again also like i said Poorly marketing the damn thing. Timing but, too. Uh, Just timing's a lot of it. Yeah, because first, you know, first online, really first online console, and no one was ready to do online gaming on home console. I mean, hell, we were only kind of doing it on PC at that time. Yeah, that's true. But Lord, we're. Yeah, 83 just kind of ends up being this soft year that has one of the most important things for video games at the time. But really, yeah, no no games really to speak of. So it's kind of like, it was like, well, okay, I I kind of, I can shut, shut my wad very early. Yeah, it's, uh, the one thing I was thinking about, though, is there's a game that I never played when it first came out, but I played it later, and it reminded me of another game that tortured the hell out of me. Was, uh, uh, what was it? Tapper was called first, and then it turned into Root Beer oh. Tapper. And then it reminded yeah. me of the stupid yeah. milkshake scene in Back to the Future. Bastards. <laughs> well, that, I have no doubt that the milkshake scene was completely inspired by Tapper. Yeah. 100% because no one ever did anything like that prior <laughs> is that it are you done already I am actually done holy this, shit like, how long have we short... talked for oh my god 27 minutes eh I'm actually shocked uh, uh, I'm going to look for games real quick just to uh, load runner I remember that was a big PC game uh, oh come on you skipped Star Wars the greatest arcade game of my childhood and I love so much the vector graphics is I love this game and it had like digitized voice which I'd never heard before Luke use the force I play this game all the time 
I might miss that one, but yeah, it's like I, I was sitting there trying to find like the most notable things, and sadly, mm. yeah, you go like. Well, a whole heck I of didn't a know lot. they made a Halloween game. I had no idea they made a home console game. Wow. I mean, I mean, come on. This year we had the second pole position game. <sighs> yeah, Crystal Castles good, is good impossible. Game. I cannot play Crystal Castle. I tried so hard. It's so weird. Yeah, is it? It's like, you know, I, I for a little bit I was going to talk about Ultima Three, which is one of the first games to use tactical turn-based combat. Yeah. But even at the same time, it's like. I mean, Nobunaga's Ambition, which is one of the longest-running uh, strategy RPGs in Japan. Ooh, this is the year they also came, came over here a little bit. They had the Star Trek Vector Graphics game, too. They had, like, the same console. It's like once Star Wars didn't do... You know, like, they traded out Star Trek for Star Wars the same exact console. It's a sit-down. Even though for the longest time I never played the sit-down Star Wars, I always played the stand-up with that remote... Con- that, that, that controller. You know the one that looks just like inside the spaceship? No, that one I... That one I'm not aware of. Oh, you gotta look at the controller for the Star Wars arcade game. It's so unusual. It, it's on par with the Tron controller, where it's just so unique, you only know it from that particular game. Yeah, that, I'll have to take a look at that. How can we yeah. not talk about Pepsi Invaders? What the hell is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as I said, well, Pepsi Invaders kind of shows up in my uh, lots of Lots of uh, ill-advised branded uh, content. Yeah, we had a, uh, a Kool-Aid game. Uh, a friend of mine got from like buying like a thousand you know, packages or something, and um, uh, it's just him like being bashing through walls and going, "Oh yeah!" and then like, collecting other jugs of Kool-Aid or something like that. I can't remember. Well, I of licensed product, I think the one of the one of the best ones was Cool Spot. That is uh, the best, I think. Uh, I had a Noid game. This is, of course, these games are years down the line, but the Noid game was kind of stupid. But yeah, the the 7-Up spot game, I think, is the best of those gimmicky, licensed, uh, based off of a food thing. Yeah, it, it shouldn't have worked as well as it did. But somehow it wasn't as garbage. Yeah. All right, well, I guess we came to the end of 1983. Wow. Uh, it's the shortest. Yeah. You know what? It, to be fair, I'm also tired, so I'm grateful. <laughs> yeah, it, it's one of those where I'm just going. Yeah, we're it's it's not a uh, game heavy year, unfortunately. Yeah, so it's probably gonna be try... dry for a couple years. We're not gonna be able to talk about anything probably till eighty five or eighty six. Eighty four is probably gonna suck. But hey, don't let that keep you from listening to the next episode. I didn't do a very good job selling it, dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, we'll find... Again, games still came out, and heck, even looking at some of the stuff in 84, there is still some really notable stuff to mention. Okay. All right, so that is it for this segment. Uh, We'll be back with something else in just a bit. Two shakes and a... (laughs) I got nothing, dude. I was trying to make fun of Chuck Woolery. He's an idiot. Fucking moron. It's like... Hey everybody, we are discussing on Hit Rewind the action films of 1983. If you've been listening to the show, you know it's me and Rob. We break down what was made that year, pick four films. Well, I let him pick the four films because honestly, I, I, I hate being a control freak. So he's my guest, he picks the four. <laughs> Though, this is the first time where I was like, I really don't want to uh, discuss one of them. And uh, thankfully, you weren't too mad at me. Revenge of the Ninja, I, I discussed it like six months ago on a different podcast. And, uh, yeah, yeah. 
you uh, you had never seen Nate Hayes, correct? No, no, I I'd never even heard of it until you mentioned it, and um, when you mentioned it, that the pirate movie starring Tommy Lee Jones, written by John Hughes, it was like, yeah, I have to see this. I, I definitely have to see this now. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a weird movie. I had caught it. Uh, I want to say eighty six or eighty seven, like on a Saturday night, NBC or ABC. And uh, I was truly captivated by it, but I didn't have a TV guide, and they never told me what the movie was, so I forgot about it for years. And right. I just it kind of lingered in my mind. I was like, I saw some pirate movie. Like I didn't know who Tommy Lee Jones was. I just knew the kid from Caddyshack was in it. And yeah, uh, yeah, I, I was I was actually discussing that because uh, uh, I, I I watched it with uh, my roommate Di, and um, we were just trying to find out like what other things he was in other than Caddyshack. And it was like he was also Jackie's boyfriend in Roseanne. Yeah. And it was like, oh, okay, okay, okay. But then it was like, and then what else? And she was like, I don't know. The hot chick. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's he's one of those guys that had a, a short opportunity at stardom, and he's in a really great film where he is a young college student, and uh, he follows Karen Allen to like this group meeting, and it turns out it's a, a cult. And, uh, 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 damn it, Keith Carradine is the head of the cult, and he's very smooth and calm and peaceful, but he's slowly breaking down your mind and making you a part, maybe like this, you know, whole David Koresh kind of thing. And, uh, his parents, and, um, uh, Brian Dennehy is his dad. He's desperate to get him out of it, and he has to deprogram him, so he hires fucking asshole extreme James Woods to basically break down his mind again and rebuild it the way it used to be and it's, it's from the director of uh, First Blood and they, they're both done in the same year it's a really awesome movie called Split Image wow oh that sounds interesting and, and especially when you said Keith Carradine because I think Keith Carradine is perfect for roles like that he just has such a, like an energy to him like that um, hold on a second. Rewind. It's Peter Fonda. Sorry, I don't know why I get those two confused. Oh. It's Peter Fonda that does it. Uh, oh, okay, 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 okay. Peter Fonda too. Peter Fonda still has a quality to him like that too as well. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a perfectly fine mix-up. But he uh, <laughs> he was in a Neil Simon movie called The Slugger's Wife, which is truly awful. The worst thing night Neil Simon ever wrote. Um, wow. The Whoopi Boys with Paul Rodriguez, where it's just like a wacky comedy. All these movies bombed. Nate Hayes bombed as well, so his career is basically over. But he uh, he moved yeah. over to television. It's kind of like his uh, bread and butter for a while. Yeah. The, it was a shame, too, because I, I read up on why it bombed. The, the, apparently, uh, um, Paramount didn't want to upset the power that be in a sort of way because they felt it was too similar to... Uh, Temple of Doom, which was coming out the, the next year, but not really. And, uh, they, I don't yeah, see. not like I was like, what the, what the hell are they talking about? I mean, I could see like maybe like when the, they're, they're trying to sacrifice Sophie at the end, and like you know the chase and the, the the beginning and stuff. It was like other than that, it's it's perfectly capable swashbuck old fashioned swashbuckling adventure. I thought yeah. it was great. Well, here's the thing. I think it's more than just that, though. What had happened after Raiders Lost Ark, I mean, it was expensive, sort of, $20 million, but it brought in, what, 500 mm-hmm. worldwide? So all the independent yeah, yeah. companies started going, well, if they did that for $20 million, we can have the same kind of concept. We can do it for two. 
you know, you, you know, two to right. five million dollars, and that became the market for years. It was oversaturated with independent films, especially Italian ripoffs. And I oh, think yes. so. It's not so much that particular type of movie, but it's a, a, the genre of high adventure, you know, old school mm-hmm. throwback kind of movies. And all of a sudden, we just got like a hundred of them. They're on TV. Um, uh, Tales of the Gold Monkey was kind of like that. Bring them back alive. So we're almost getting oversaturated. So I wonder if Paramount just saw, well, this is just another high adventure movie. We should pull this. Plus, pirate movies hadn't exactly done well just right before this because we had um, yeah. Pirate Movie and Pirates of Penzance both tanked horribly. Yeah, and, and they continue to do poorly because uh, uh, one of my favorites from the 90s, Cutthroat Island, yeah. uh, bombed horrendously to the point where it basically shut down Karolko. <laughs> you know yeah, like, it doesn't have a Muppet uh, in it? No! <laughs> Cancel it! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pirate movies wouldn't get a resurgence at the Pirates of the Caribbean and the aughts, you know? Yeah. So I could see that. And, and here's the weird thing is it's kind of based on a true uh, guy uh, with a bully haze. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, I read that. Uh, he was the, what was it, Nathaniel Bully Hayes? Or, or uh, like, he was, yeah, a very prolific uh, pirate, per se, you know. So he was, like, murdered. And it was weird, too, because it's like a pirate movie, but it's also, like, a kind of Old West-style movie. Well, yeah, it's it's Which a different era. We're used to pirate movies in like the 15th through the 17th century. This looks like it's yeah, almost right. steampunk era. This is real late 1800s. It's like the last of the pirates. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. You know, we're used to the pirates having like muskets and stuff, you know. <laughs> Those single shot uh, uh, shooters they had. But uh, yeah, they were sitting there shooting like uh, on Wayne up in there. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I think Michael Keefe is a really affable lead. Uh, I just wish he had more opportunity to do it. But he bounces off well with uh, Tommy Lee Jones. And I think a oh, lot yes. of it has to do with John Hughes. They say he wrote it, but he was added on to rewrite it. And I think he's the one who built the characters into like uh, more buddy comedy. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. It's kinda, it kind of has the... Not to mention uh, Pirates of the uh, Caribbean. It kind of has the kind of... Uh, the same kind of setup, you know, with just with uh, Tommy Lee Jones and the Jack Sparrow role, you know, and uh, you know you have the love story between the two young, the two younger kids, you know. It's, it, that's why I, I kind of get the vibe of like this is basically Pirates of the Caribbean before Pirates of the Caribbean, yeah. but without the ghost. And uh, I remember being uh, like, for some reason, it stuck in my head when he's stuck out in the ocean on that piece of the ship. Because you know, he gets knocked mm-hmm. out and everybody gets killed and this girl gets kidnapped. Um, I, for years I had this weird nightmare around water that I would be just stuck out in there. Just forever. Just in an abyss and eventually just eaten by a shark. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, totally. I, I, I can see how that sucks. I actually won't even get in the ocean. I lived on the coast. I mean literally like right by the beach for years. And, and I never got in the water because of my fear of just... I don't know what's down there. I can't see it. It's going to eat me. Right, right, totally. I, I could, I could uh, relate. I'm fine from the beach. It's good. I see water. We're, I can see it. It's fine. I don't want to get in it. Because plus, you don't know what else is in there. There's probably trash and people peeing in there. Oof. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The, uh, but I, I think it's a fun movie. Um, I, I wish the budget was a little bit bigger. This is like one of New Zealand's first movies, right? Yeah, I believe so, yeah. Because I know they did... 
what is that one? Uh, Warlords of the 21st Century, a.k.a. Battle Truck. Uh, that was like one of the first like New Zealand, but this is like a studio production, not a pickup later. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, um, yeah, like like you said, it could have been a little bigger, but I thought they did well with what they had, like uh, you know the battle scenes and uh, particularly the one at the end, uh, the, the the basically they playing battleship with each other, you know, old fashioned battleship. Yeah. You know, with the shooting at each other, I thought that was great, and you know. The nice uh, old, the real old-fashioned swashbuckling on the, on the ship where everybody's sword fighting. Everybody just pulls out swords and starts fighting. I'm like, oh, this is great. <laughs> um, Ferdinand Fairfax is the director, and he's not really a household name. He's just one of these guys that kind of skirted outside mainstream films. I, I think this is his yeah. one big shot. He was mostly a TV guy. Mm-hmm. I'm looking right here. Savage Islands is what it was called overseas. Oh, he did The Rescue! The the lost uh, touchstone film. Oh, is, is that the one with uh, Kevin Dillon and Skip? Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember that movie. I like that movie. Huh? I wish they released that. I wonder why that one is kind of a loss. Oh, hold on a second. I can buy it on Prime though. At least it's available. It wasn't available for so long. Oh, I don't know if I'd pay fifteen bucks for it though. Yikes. I hear that. <laughs> but if, if it's ever cheap, we should we should do that and uh, Iron Eagle. Oh yeah, absolutely. They're like, yeah, those two always go hand in hand. Kind of. That'd be be a great double feature. Um, So I would say yes to uh, Nate Hayes. It's a curiosity that it got buried by the studio for whatever, you know, just logic they were using didn't make sense to me. But um, if you have Amazon, you said it's also on Hulu? Yes, yes. Okay. Uh, What is our second film? Uh, second film is uh, Blue Thunder. Oh, Blue Thunder. I watched that. I was so obsessed with this movie when I was growing up. Yeah, totally, right? It, it's uh, yeah. it's like Airwolf, but you actually like the two guys. <laughs> I mean, I love Ernest Borgnine. <laughs> Michael Vincent isn't exactly the most likable in Airwolf. And Blue Thunder, it's yeah. just, uh, you know, Jaffo and uh, Roy Scheider. Uh, oh, no, Jaffo is Jada yeah. Stern, by the way. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're both so good together. And I love his ex-wife. Candy Clark is fantastic as well. Oh, my God. I love Candy Clark. I, I love Candy Clark. I mean, I always remember her as the, the ill-fated waitress from The Blob. Yeah. She's just... She's such a... She's such a cutie. She <laughs> was... Especially uh, this one. She was up here for a car show. They would, uh, during the summers, they do the American Graffiti kind of revival road show during right, the summer. Right, right. And it's usually her and Bo Hopkins. And she was up here. For some nice. reason, I just looked at her and go, Oh, hey, Candy Clark! Um, and, and I go, Blue Thunder, and that was it. And I just walked off, and I go, what the fuck was that? <laughs> like, But it didn't occur to me. For like, I can't go back now. That was just embarrassing. Can I have your autograph? I was just kind of weird back there. Sorry. <laughs> oh. I'm, like, I'm like that guy who tries to be cool about things, but by being cool about things, I look like a dork. Oh, yeah, totally. I, I totally did that. When I met uh, James Glickenhaus, uh put my arm on him for some reason like ah! why, why did I do this yeah what the hell like, like, like why why and I mean I have people telling me like no it's okay like you know what I'm saying like no it's not that's, that's rude <laughs> <laughs> I mean he was he, he was he was totally humble dude he didn't seem to, to give a shit at all you know what I'm saying he was just you know kicking the shit you know with me and other people you know what I'm saying so but uh, I was just like oh my god why did I do that why why yeah <laughs> but with Blue Thunder um what, what's interesting is, unlike a lot of movies of this time when we're fearing technology, it, this approaches mm-hmm. it slightly different. 
instead of being, oh, our jobs are going to be replaced by this technology, this is more like, holy crap, check out this new toy. Let's go fuck around with this. And that's what gets them yeah. in trouble. Mm-hmm. That gets them into big trouble. Yeah. And it's, it's, I don't want to spoil the plot at all, but it's got the big conspiracy they stumble across. And yeah. it's it's more of a mystery, I would say, uh, techno thriller in the beginning that you know goes out with an incredibly good action sequence at the end. Right. It's it's like for the first two thirds, it's kind of like a mystery conspiracy, and then the last third is just wall to wall helicopter chases and car chases and uh, fighter jet chases, yeah. and like and explosions, <laughs> like like it's, it's perfect, perfect, perfect build up. Like I I. I particularly big fan of movies that are like slow burns like that yeah you know, it's they just build to the incredible climax well i had read that this sat on the shelf not sat on the shelf but it was in post-production for so long it was actually shot yeah. in 81 but sat around for two years because it was so difficult to get the technical shots down that by the time it came out john Batham was wrapping up war games which so it's weird he had two yeah. hits in one year yeah totally but also, uh, by the time it came out, Warren Oates had passed away. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't think John Badham gets a lot of credit. The 90s were rough on him. And uh, now yeah. he's just doing TV movies. And I was like, dude, he, from 77 to like 1990, he was on fire. Yeah, yeah, he made a lot of great stuff. I mean, I mean, some of his '90s stuff too. Like, I, I'm a huge fan of uh, the Hard Way with him and uh, yeah, I love that movie. Michael J. Fox but they just and, they just didn't do very well. That's kind of like the last movie I think that broke even. Because what did he do after that? He did um, uh, another Stakeout, which is terrible. I love the first and the second one; just doesn't work. Um, yeah, right. It doesn't even look like his movie. Isn't that weird? He has a signature look, and he ditched it. It just looks so flat yeah. and generic. I, I was saying that to, to myself when I I rewatched. Blue Thunder for the purposes of like you could totally tell this is this is his movie like because he has a very specific way of doing things right and he know? has a color palette he likes to use and he uses right wide, you know he shoots wide and uh, stake another stakeout seems compressed like they didn't have enough money to get like a real you know enough scenery like well we have we can't shoot beyond this point and this point here so keep between the two houses and that's it I'm like really did yeah. you shoot this in like a couple weeks. <laughs> But uh, what did he do? That drop zone. Um, I can't remember what he did. I, I thought I thought I thought drop zone was okay. It's yeah, it's fine. I know that 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 was I know that was because uh, it was prepped by Jean de Bond and then he left to do Speed. Oh okay. And uh, and uh, uh, Bannon was a, a replacement director. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, what did he do after? That? Nick of Time. That one's good. I like. That oh one. yeah, yeah, yeah. Nick of Time is great. Nick and that looks great. like his movie. Both Drop Zone and Nick of Time look like his. Right. Oh yeah, I also forgot. He also did a Point of No Return. The, oh the remake right. of uh, the American, the so, remake of uh, La Femme Nikita. What I like about his films is that he has style, but it never overrides the substance. He, yes. I would say he lays the groundwork for which Bruckheimer would copy later, but I always think uh, Bruckheimer edits too much. There's too much jump cutting around or whatever and shaky cam, um, mm-hmm. especially in the Michael Bay years, where uh, oh, yeah. Batum lets the camera breathe. He takes it's flashy, but he he sits it back and he'll 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 let you see everything without fast cuts. Absolutely, absolutely, totally. And uh, Malcolm McDowell is, uh, I mean, this is like 
pretty early on in his uh, villainous career. Uh, he was still bouncing yeah. out of uh, eccentric guys, but you know, sometimes good, sometimes bad. But after this, it seemed like it was just villains for the rest of his career. Yeah, yeah, he he really sat into the villainous role after after, after this. Um, curious, curiously enough, though, even though they they played you know you know antagonistic toward each other in the movie, the him and Shida became great friends. That's uh, cool. During the course, like maybe almost like you know inseparable, but sad. There and, was. Uh, uh, I, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was I was I was going to say that uh, to the point when. Shira unfortunately passed away. That uh, Malcolm McDowell was was almost practically devastated because uh, uh, also like not because of the loss of his friend, but because he couldn't make it to the funeral because he had contractual obligations at the movie he was filming. So he made sure to send like you know giant bouquet of flowers to show like you know his pay his respect to his friend who passed away. You know. Yeah. Uh, Roy Scheider, this is kind of the end of his career as a as a successful leading man because this is when it starts to get a little troublesome. Like, like there's 2010, and then um, mm-hmm. uh, it starts to another fall apart point. with uh, 52 pickup, and he never had another hit. Right, you know, then uh, the, you know, there's Cohen and Tate and and stuff like that, and yeah, like you know, it's kind of he he really petered out, and uh, by the 90s, I mean, he was doing uh, stuff for PM Entertainment, and you know. Oh, Sequest though, Sequest is fun. Yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I love Sequest. Sequest was was my jam. Um, uh, I I remember him playing. Uh, he was playing the president, and um, he played the president a few times in the nineties. Yeah, peacekeeper, right? Yeah, the peacekeeper, and then uh, executive target with uh, Michael Madsen. Um, was there another? Uh, I know he. I know he played it. I, I can't remember at the point, but. Yeah. Uh, I think he played president a couple of times during the nineties in uh you know, low budget director video action films. Yeah, I think the last time I saw him in a studio film, sort of studio film, was The Punisher, and he's just one of those guys that really brings the goods, but he's unusual looking for a leading man. Yeah, he has he has kind of like a you know pre- I mean, I don't wanna say peculiar, like, you know, make it seem like he's weird looking. But uh, you know, it's he he seems like an everyman quality to his features. Right, yeah. Like, you know, not like not not like, you know, what you would think a leading man would look like, you know. I think that's why uh 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 freaking William Freakin tried to be uh real funny about it, uh after the what was it, um the box office disaster that was Sorcerer. Sorcerer, yeah. And I love yeah, I love Sorcerer. But uh I know one of the reasons he, he said about its failure was because uh, he made the mistake of uh, casting Roy Scheider in the lead. And Roy Scheider is not a lead. He's you just pay attention to <laughs> Woo! All that jazz got him an like, Oscar nomination? Come on. Right, like, uh, yeah, I, th- I think you're losing it there, Friedkin. You might want to relax. <laughs> some people, some, it could be a great movie, but people just don't see it for whatever reason. But it's on. It, as long as it's available, it'll find an audience later, and it did. Right. I mean, so, the, the, so with Sorcerer, uh, all he had to do was just pay attention. It was just release, you know, release. I think it came out like two weeks after Star Wars came out. Yeah, it buried everything. In its Every, everything got dis- everything got destroyed by that movie. So, yeah. you know, 
that that's 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 your excuse right there. No need to put it on uh, Shider. Yeah, right, so. but the everyman quality is what works in this film because he's just a blue yeah. collar cop who just has to be a little bit more with it than uh, most of the people. His they have that scene where he shows uh, going through the garage and he's trying to go through the cones as fast as possible, and he does it like mm-hmm. with finesse. But then later when he's shaken up, he can't. He's too stressed out and aggravated by Michael McDowell that he can't do it right anymore. Yeah, yeah, totally, yeah. And, and uh, uh, McDowell notices that too. Yeah, yeah, he takes advantage of it. But, uh, you know, it was so difficult to film and, and, and it was kind of costly. And it, it did well, but not enough to really rationalize a sequel. But they, they saved a lot of the footage and uh, the helicopter and they used it in the TV show, which is okay. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah, the, I know, it only lasted like one season, right? Yeah, it's like twelve episodes. Dana Carvey takes over for uh, uh, Daniel Stern. We yeah. have James Tarantino, yeah. Bubba Smith, and Dick Buckus. Dick Buckus, the most ridiculous name. How do you not change that? <laughs> <laughs> Dick Butt Kiss. Yeah, yeah. That's like a porno name. Totally. It's like uh, Peter North, and you know, <laughs> Dick Butt. right, right, totally, <sighs> <laughs> absolutely. But the. You know, um, Booze Under was um, a movie that I, I uh, called one of my uh, sleepless movies. Uh, I was I was a kid who uh, sometimes uh, I would wake up in the middle of the night and just go back to sleep to save my life. So I would just go and watch TV. And namely, that's how I ended up watching movies that I was entirely too young to have been watching. <laughs> one, of those, one of those nights I saw like uh, In the Heat of Passion. You remember that one? With uh, Sam Kirkland and... Huh? Is it Barry Bostwick? I know there's two of them. I know he's in one of them. Um, this this one had uh, Nick Corey uh, from uh, Nightmare on Elm Street and Sally Kirk. Oh yeah, yeah, like yeah, a, yeah. I, did I ever tell you about erotic my, film noir? Yeah, yeah, my VHS collection. I told you about this, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was one of them. I remember um, having that movie. <laughs> yeah, and and uh, also um, the Sorority House Massacre too. You know, all stuff I shouldn't have been watching. <laughs> um, we watched it on USA Up but, All Night. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, we had Cinemax and shit. So oh like, um, yes, you know, the classic Cinemax. I was seeing, yeah, I was seeing all the goods. You know, I always wondered what the but, the package deal was with uh, HBO and Cinemax, and it's like, well, we'll give you these hundred movies, and HBO is like, yeah, we'll take the top five Cinemax. Here you go, take the rest. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. But um, that's how I discovered Blue Thunder. I discovered it just you know channel surfing in the middle of the night, and this was before like uh this was at the time um uh daniel stern had kind of like you know made his way as like a comedic actor after uh, home alone and he did uh uh you know bushwhacked and rookie of the year you know so like he was primarily known to me as a comedic actress and this was the first time i'd ever seen him like play like relatively serious even though he's kind of the comedy relief yeah like he's playing it relatively seriously and then, like you know, you know, he's in this thriller and stuff. And then, you know, you get to his death scene, and it's like, oh my god, they just killed Marv. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's no. it's weird looking at his '80s stuff because you have Chud and you have Leviathan and stuff. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, and uh, but for the most part, he was known more as a comedic actor. I think he's kind of switching around now. It seems like after the uh, after Bushwhack, he kind of disappeared and started doing like lower budget dramas. And I think he yeah. just want to be respected again. Right, right. Uh, like this was this was before uh, you know I had seen any of those. Like I, I hadn't seen Chud or um, Diner or like you know, like Leviathan. Then you know, 
I started seeing this and like I realized, wow, he has great range as an actor. You know, I, I wish you know people realized that more than just remembering him as Mar from Home Alone. Yeah, I had not seen this movie until college because I saw Firefox and it's, they, they came out around the same time and they, they had kind of like they were sold as kind of similar ideas. At least they were when I was five or six. Right. And Firefox was right, insanely right. boring. I mean, I my God, a two and a half hour movie where only the last twenty minutes is the actual plane. Fuck you, <laughs> you're screwing with me now. Right, right, totally, totally. And uh, I, I remember my father was like, "Oh yeah, I like this. This movie's good." And I watched it. and I was like, "Papa, are you serious? The, just, just give me Daryl. I'd rather watch Daryl." <laughs> I still <laughs> gotta. I've never seen Daryl. I gotta watch this movie. Oh, Daryl rules! I love Daryl so much. Yeah, so Blue Thunder is a big thumbs up. If you're curious, I think the Blu-ray comes with a couple episodes of the TV show, but that is out of print right now. So I end up just getting it on Voodoo, like when it was on sale. Oh, uh, I, yeah, I watched it. Uh, it's on demand on uh, the Pluto app. Oh, okay. That's where I watched it. Yeah, it was it was on there for free. The, I mean, it, it it comes with commercials, but the commercials are just very brief. You know, the funny thing is, commercials don't bother me that much as long as it's not the same damn commercials, who blew. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, this, is, this, is, this is what I got. It was literally like the same commercial like every like, 15, 20 oh minutes. Oh my god, it drove me nuts. I, I, the reason I've never seen Invisible Man is because I saw the commercials 17,000 times, and I'm maybe a couple years from now, but right now I just have no taste for it because of a stupid trailer. But, you know, I, we're, you and I are the kind of kids who discovered movies on regular television, you know. I, I would pop yeah. a tape in, and it's like, well, there's some movies on tonight. I'll tape from midnight to six and see what I get. So I'm used to watching movies that were edited and, and have commercials in them. Yeah, yeah, totally. I, I, I can't tell you the amount of times. Uh, I remember I was discussing that um, on another on another show where um, uh, I, I'd seen, when I was a kid, I'd seen Creepshow on television a numerous amount of times. And I didn't realize they edited out the last episode, the, the Creeping Up On You. Yeah. So I was like mainly, like I, I think, 21 until I finally saw the, the, the last episode of Creepshow. I only thought there were four episodes for the longest time. And I didn't realize that they, there was a fifth episode of Creepshow. And I was like, oh, <laughs> uh, They only could have padded Creepshow 2 out a little bit more. Instead of like just yeah, totally. oh Jesus, that's barely a movie. They do only three segments, and they're like twenty minutes long. Yeah, and then they cover it with that awful wraparound. Um, but another movie that I discovered on television, and I had never seen the complete thing until just recently, was Uncommon Valor. I'd only ever seen it like ABC one night, like decades ago. Right, right, right. This was a uh, Uncommon Valor was um, a movie that was very well known to me in in uh in a year because it's a favorite film of my uncle who's a veteran and he's a he, he was a big fan of this movie so i, I knew a, uh uh quite a deal about uncommon valor i didn't see it like until like a little later you know because i was more into like uh you know uh rambo first blood part two and this and all that stuff and um i know you know the big argument with that is uh which, who did the the rescue in Vietnam POWs movies first? And it's like it's always between Missing in Action and First Blood Part Two. And it's like, uh, you do realize Uncommon Valor came out in '83 before either of those came out, right? Yeah, and it wasn't a flop. It you made know? like 32 million dollars. So clearly, people went to go see it. So it's kind of strange. It's been uh, I somewhat forgotten because it never had. It's it's action, but it's kind of grounded in reality instead of the super macho yes. '80s Reagan kicks some ass, you know. 
Right, totally. And, and yeah, and it bugs me out too how the how it is forgotten considering the the cast that it had. Yeah, it's so expe- know, unexpected. Like I that's a, yeah. that guy's in it. That guy's in it. What? Right, right. Like it's just a who's who of just like you know fucking awesome people. Like you know, not just Gene Hackman, of course, but you got Patrick Swayze, you got Tim Thomerson, Fred Ward. Uh, Randall Tex Cobb, fucking Red Brown, like yeah. come on, like this, <laughs> still this yelling, is an awesome cat. By the way, it's still yelling, yeah. yelling. blaster, blast. What <laughs> uh, <laughs> is that? Why is it in every movie he does that? <laughs> I, I think, I think you know, he probably did it once, and like, oh yeah, that's 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 cool. R- roll with it, you know. And he literally does it in everything after that. He did it in uh, Strike Commando, Space Mutiny, um. Uh, Robo War uh, yeah. was it Mercenary Fighters? He even did it in the episode of uh, Miami Vice that he guest starred. Oh my god, which is really? My favorite Miami Vice episode. Oh. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, that's we my have favorite Harold's... Miami Vice episode, by the way. Uh, <laughs> um, Harold Sylvester, uh, I, I love from. Uh, isn't he mostly known from? Is it Married with Children? He's on. What is what is yes, the show? Yeah, he okay. played Griff. Yeah, Griff on uh, Married with Children. Um, uh, Al's uh, Al's uh, uh, assistant. Um, partner in the, the shoe store yeah he's a much better I mean I like married children but he seems like a better actor than that quality but then again look at everybody that came out of that show pretty much everybody's become like a respected actor so what do I know right 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 totally um I'm sure, I feel like we're forgetting somebody thinking going through whatever but um we'll, we'll, pro- we'll probably remember later but uh, let's talk about Randall Tex <laughs> Cobb right. holy fucking shit Randall Tex Cobb is a find in this movie and he's I didn't know that he was like a martial arts master that he, that he had been a boxer you know I just thought that was all yeah. acting but um and then it just parlayed into acting and, and he's kind of known as the weirdo character actor and he just is so good at it but he's beautiful in this movie he you know that ugly beautiful oh, yeah, thing yes I, I get sad yeah, every he, single time he dances. Yeah, like he's a uh, he's just amazing in the movie. I mean, I knew um, about his boxing career because my father was a big fight fan, so he'd seen uh, a couple of uh, his matches. But, um, according to my dad, he he wasn't that great. But um, I think uh, uh, he he's just he he's absolutely amazing. Like. Uh, and his his big uh, fight scene with uh, the late great Patrick Swayze, you know, like get up, come on, you quit, you know. And it's like, you know, he's he's such a revelation. I know, like he's been kind of confined to being like the weirdo, especially after uh, uh, raising Arizona. Yeah. Like he's been combined like the weird, crazy guy, and like uh, I mean, mostly comedic stuff. Like he's you know. Uh, after, especially Ace Ventura, everybody remembers him from Ace Ventura too. He had a small part in Ace Ventura. Like, oh, that's the guy from Ace Ventura. Just like, you don't watch more, mo- you don't watch a lot of movies, do you? Right, right. <laughs> Ernest goes to jail. That's another big one. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but like, yeah, he's been he's been great in, you know, basically everything he's done. Blind Fury, the you know. He, he's one of my favorites. I can't, I can't say enough good things about Brandon Tickstop, but he's just absolutely fucking amazing in the movie. Like, he probably has the, 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 the you know, spoilers to people who haven't seen Uncommon Valor, a movie that's about to be, what, fucking 40 years old right now? Um, 
the he probably has the saddest death in the entire movie. Yeah. You know, his final scene is just like, oh god. You know, I mean, but that's that's the beauty of the movie because, you know, in comparison to like, the, you know, his counterparts missing in action, and uh, especially First Blood Part Two. You know, you you grow with the team as like they come together. You know, it's more about training them for the mission than the mission itself. So like you know to see them come together as a unit and then just get cut down in the end, it's just like yeah. Well, a lot of it is the fact that they've been tore apart and they've gone into their own lives and they and a lot of them just leave yes. it behind. Sometimes it's just too painful for some of them to deal with, and but they yeah. know that they left their friends behind and they can't yeah. let that go and. Um. Yeah, so it's about getting the team together. That's like the first arc, and then training them, building their facility. But what I love is, again, spoiler, uh, the loophole they throw into it that they're so prepared, they have all the weapons they need. And, oh, taken away. Mm-hmm. Now they got to start from scratch yeah. with the shittiest guns they can find and, and no idea yeah, how to get The shittiest them. equipment, like fucking World War Two fucking machine guns they give them. And it's just like, but they make it work, you know, and because uh, that's just... You know the, you know the teamwork that they built up. You know what I'm saying like you know, they, they they just built this incredible unit. And, you know, and even with you know these circumstances, you know, against them going against them, you know they they really you know make it work. And you know, you know for lack of a better term, because a lot of them get killed, but you know, it, mission is successful. You know, so I think that's that's I think that's the the best part about the movie altogether. You know yeah. what I'm saying? just the team aspect of it right and there's just an honesty in how they do it yes it's it's a little bit fantasy but how they go through well it's, i think a lot of it's because of milius right he helped them design the the, the battle so that yes. it was more um coherent instead of just running in there and shooting it's like well you have to be here and here and here let's break this down how you would really attack and right, um, right. you know in the little the little uh, bits and pieces like when fred ward he's a tunnel rat and you rarely ever see tunnel rats in these movies before um, but it became right. kind of a cliche right. after after Uncommon Valor. But he goes in, and you don't think about what else is down there. And then he gets bit by that snake. I mean, I couldn't do it because I'm claustrophobic. But I just right. thought they really took like, well, if you're gonna do this, how would you really approach it? Right. The I mean, like, yeah, the, the, that's a great part, point you bring up though about rats because uh, that that uh, that's kind of seemed like the forgotten part of uh, the whole Vietnam conflict. To, to the point where it's like the best uh, thing about uh, like the best thing to come out of that like is in, in the movie subject is a fucking Uwe Boll movie yeah he did that, the uh, only good that uh, honestly rap. in my opinion the only decent Uwe Boll movie yes yes that's the only one that that I consider good like I know people a lot of people will push back oh it's Uwe Boll but like, no it's decent like I, I I thought it was okay like I thought it was good like for, for him it's fucking you know coming okay. out of Evil Bowl it's a fucking masterpiece right right but uh, as, as a film on its own it's like this is this is good I like this yeah it's uh, I just it, and the fact that the ending gives you a victory but it takes away something too he gets he, they save people but he never finds his son I mean the door's closed because right. they found it he died but there's yeah. a weird well, I mean, he gets closure on him because he finally knows his son's at rest, but the, he never got to reunite him. They went through all of this, but at least they got to save people. So it's a good and bad. I, I just think there's a bittersweetness right, right, right. to it. Yeah. yeah, totally. You know, you know, there's that, like you said, bittersweetness where it's like, you know, but at least, you know, like, like you said, it's the closure. Like, you know, uh, uh, 
you know, he you take away the fact that, you know, not knowing what happened to your son, now he knows. But like it's it's fucked up because, you know, it, the, the son is dead. But at least, you know, it's a it's a victory in itself because they were able to rescue like, you know, other brethren, you know, brothers in a, right. in combat and stuff. So I mean, it's a victory, but like, I mean, yeah, like it, you per- put it perfectly. It, it's bittersweet, and it's the only one that. So Rambo, they all feel exploitive in one way or another. They turn Rambo into a superhero. Yeah. Uh, same thing with Missing in Action, but a lot of them had kind of a sleazy quality to them. The, the mission, uh, the Missing in Action two, there's something so grimy and torturous about. It. I can't, I cannot sit through the second one. You know, POW the Escape. A lot of these were just exploitation films. There is class. And I think a lot of it is because of Ted Kocheff, who um, yeah. he did do the first blood, right? Yeah, yeah, he did. He yeah. did the, the first first blood. And first the best Rambo. one. And, and the, the one that was really tasteful. I mean, yeah. I love the whole series, but that one had class. Right. The, the Going back to First Blood uh, Part 2, the Stallone actually has come out on a record saying, uh, uh, going on record saying that he regrets doing it like that, you know, that just turning into like this fanciful, like macho fantasy kind of thing, and he, and he admits that that was a mistake to do that, you know. He regrets that, you know, not being more realistic, not keeping in tune with uh, the original one, which is why he, I think he brought uh, Tekachev back on Part Four as an advisor. So he could keep in tone with like keeping that tone from the original First Blood. Yeah, and except for the gore, was... sweet Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, totally. But uh, yeah, Kachev, he's um, like you know he's he's really gone you know as you know it seems like he's like forgotten, which is a shame because he's a damn fine filmmaker. You know, there was this um, uh, First Blood, of course. Uh, I know it's uh, it's completely out of the genre, but Weekend at Bernie's. Yeah, it's such a strange, strange. Well, I feel like his last <laughs> one was um, Hidden Assassin with Dolph Lundgren. I think. Yeah, I feel yeah. like that was kind of. The yeah, end I was about there. to mention that. Yeah, that was the. But the, that was that was a damn fine movie too. Real was it? I, it looked like, kind of boring to me, so I never got around to watching it. It was it was fine. It was like a real like it was more like a like a thriller type. It wasn't like a balls out action film. It was more like a. Like kind of like a espionage. Yeah, um, I got a weird uh, thing for thriller. movies that are shot in like Bulgaria, Yugoslavia. That look doesn't appeal to me. Yeah, yeah. I like you know a lot of shit comes out of there, you know. But um, this, there's, there's sometimes there's a diamond in the rough, and uh, I thought that one was good. I yeah. thought that one worked for me. All right, so yes, I recommend to that one, and uh, that one's usually on the uh, most streaming sites. It pops in and out like you just have to sit through commercials. But that's one you can just like, hey, free this month, cool. Right. I also have it on DVD, so I was fine. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, uh, final film is. Lone Wolf McQuaid. Holy shit. Holy the shit. Chuck this is Norris the craziest classic. Chuck Norris movie ever. This one, like, uh, and I, I don't think it has anything to do with him. I think it's completely like uh, uh, Steve Carver's doing. He creates a spaghetti western. It's so gloriously ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, my, like, I gotta admit, my, my father is not a Chuck Norris fan. He does not like Chuck Norris. I mean, he doesn't hate Chuck Norris, but he's not a fan of Chuck's movies. Like, uh, you should hear him bash the Missing in Action movies. Like, 
fucking Braddock dodging bullets before Neo in the Matrix, but he's <laughs> not in the Matrix. You know, he, he hates uh, most of Chuck's movies. But uh, he does like two, Code of Silence and Low Wolf McQuaid. Uh-huh, Wolf yeah, McQuaid that's like, basically mine, too. Code of Silence is his, is such a good movie. A lot of it's, what, what makes it a good movie is not Chuck Norris. It's who is around him and who's directing it. Right, right. Chuck works best when he's with um, a really good filmmaker, you know, and you, you can put him in a world and with an aesthetic that just, that he works best in, you know, where, like, you know, because Chuck, by his own admission, is not a good actor. Like, he'll tell you himself, like, you know, that he, you know, it's more about uh, star quality than it is about acting, you know. That uh, Steve McQueen is the one who talked him into it. He was like, eh, you know, just, just you know, go in there look mean you know what I'm saying and you know it'll work you know and that's basically his whole career he just stands there you know just looking serious yeah not really saying much but um when he gets when he really gets a good filmmaker in there and like could just make it work you know what I'm saying he really gets the, the good ones and that's that's perfectly uh perfect description for this one because uh like you said it's like real drenched in the the, the spaghetti western aesthetic Especially in the score too, like the score oh, yes. has got that like, like the uh, electronic kind of like spaghetti western score at Neil Morricone's. Well, and style. he looks so grimy in the beginning. My goodness, he looks like a giant thumb, just a big hairy thumb. Right. And uh, yeah, yeah, and, right. But that's how the spaghetti western <laughs> choosing where even the heroes were disgusting. Like, ooh, when the last time you cleaned yourself up? I don't need to right, clean right. You up. look at you look at Clint in uh, the Fistful of Dollars, and he's just filthy. Everybody's filthy. Yeah, like, was it the Queen, Once Upon the a Queen, Time the in the Queen West? The Queen ones are the bad guys. Well, remember Once Upon a Time in the West? What's, um, not Charles Bronson. Who's the other guy? Um, shit. Um, Jason Same. Robards? Jason Robards is so greasy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, with the, with a you know, face full of beard, you know? <laughs> like yeah, I said, it's... the cleanest ones are the bad guys. Yeah, as yeah, I know, the irony of it, Henry ones. Fonda. Um, yeah. Especially uh, Carradine in this one. Yeah, it's... Well, I just think about everybody in this. Is he, He's surrounded by... Uh, we have Robert Beltran as, like, his new mm-hmm. sidekick. Um, I love him. He's Chakotay! In, uh, in Night of the Comet, he's great. Yeah. Um, Leon Isaac Kennedy is a guy I don't know. I've never seen the Penitentiary movies. Should I? Um, no. No, not, not, not necessarily. That's not, <laughs> not the answer I expected, but... Okay. Like, I mean, I, I've seen him, and it's like, uh, like uh, I don't recommend him. <laughs> I I will say that Leon Isaac Kennedy is is a is funny. I mean, like not not the not him, but personally, but his name, because uh, I'm a big fan of the Chappelle Show. And uh, remember that uh, the 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 Wayne Brady skit? Yeah. When uh, it was supposed to be like Training Day, uh-huh. and uh, he he tricks Dave into smoking the the angel dust. Um, and he's like, uh, Angel, that's Angel does. PCP, Love Boat, Ashy Larry. But if you go to, like, the supplemental features on the DVD, like, you see he continued, like, making up names. And then, like, uh, he's going, like, um, uh, he starts going into, like, Sherman Hemsley. <laughs> uh, Ho- he goes, Hulk Hogan, Jimmy Superfly Snooker, The Big Ragu, 
Leon Isaac Kennedy, and that's the one that breaks them. <laughs> and Davis, like he said, Leon Isaac Kennedy. Oh shit! <laughs> so, so every time I hear Leon Isaac Kennedy, I laugh because of that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I never saw the extended version. I got to see it now. Yeah, yeah, it's it's on the. Uh, if you get the DVD version, it's on the uh, third disc, which features all like the deleted scenes and bloopers and outtakes and stuff. Um, who else we oh, have? The this? second season. The second season. Oh, okay. Uh, R. G. Armstrong, classic uh, stone face yeah. kind of. Uh, you know, they always have the captain or the chief, and he's always like a classic old school actor. Like in Blue Thunder, we had Warren Oates. And uh, yes, what is R. G. Armstrong famous for? Because I have no idea. Um, I mean, I always remember him from Predator. Yeah, but that was after like, uh, this. How did he get to? This? I know, I know, but uh, like you know, me being you know a young guy, young, I mean younger than most, but uh, like I was like that's a dude from Predator, you know. Uh, also, he was in The Beast Within. Yeah. Um, I remember also with LQ Jones, who's also in this. Oh yeah, LQ um, Jones is great in this. Oh, I know what it is. Is he a Texas-based actor, and that's how come he shows up in these style of movies? I'm I'm pretty sure that's what it is. I always feel like I feel like shows that are shot in Texas or Hawaii or South America, like you know Predator and uh, um, like or, or like or the, the, the LQ Jones is in um, not the Mask of Zorro. What, what is the first one? Or it is the Mask of Zorro is the first one. You know, it always seems like those guys are in in that kind of film, and uh, it must be like just you know the Texas filmmaking community really supports those actors. Yeah, absolutely, totally. Was he in Dick Tracy? Was he like Prune Face or something? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, it's just one of those, but really, it comes down to, holy crap, Barbara Carter, um, and David Carradine just selling the shit out of this. Oh, yeah, he's such a wonderful scumbag. (laughs) Like, uh, uh, I I, I love his his final duel with uh, Chuck at the end, like after, like, you know, the big assault on the compound. Yeah, yeah. uh, They're they're finally going to have their face off, and... uh, He's, he's basically in a cardigan. <laughs> like, I know, that's fight. a weird choice. It's hotter than shit, and he's in a dad sweater. Right, <laughs> right like, Ch- Chuck doesn't even... Chuck's just wearing a vest. He doesn't even have a shirt on. And this dude has a cardigan, and he's just, like... like, And he's such a, like, like sleazy prick, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I just, like, I just he, wanted like, Chuck to go, do you, do you want to change first or anything? No? Okay. <laughs> And like the way he's sizing Chuck up, like like looking at him, like like he's looking at him, like he's a piece of meat. I was like, dude, what's wrong with you? Yeah. Well, I, you know, in, in Lonesome Highway by David Carradine is my favorite book. You like, yes, I like to tell people it's actually on the road, but it's it's actually on, uh, it's Lonesome Highway, and they go well together. By the way, on the road and Lonesome Highway are two very similar kind of stories. Um, mm-hmm. But he talks about the fact that he did not know martial arts. He had to learn it while doing Kung Fu, the, the series. Yeah. And he just stayed with it. What he did, he learned Wushu, right? Or something like that? Yeah, Tai Chi, I believe. Yeah. Oh, yeah he, yeah, he did videos on Tai Chi as well. But, yeah, and yeah. then by the time Lone Wolf McQuaid came around, uh, he was more skilled. So he could pull off these action sequences. I hate what they do now, where it's so overly choreographed. It looks like a, a ballet sometimes. Or, oh, that's a lot yeah. of wire stunts and uh, cutaways. But this is carrying all the way. Right, right, totally. I know, um, there's, I don't know how true this is, but there's a rumor that uh, 
Chuck had to warn him for, for kicking too hard. Like, like the motherfucker, you better chill out with, you know. Duh. You know, because uh, I guess, like, with Chuck, you know, Chuck was a friend of Bruce Lee. And, um, oh, you know, right. Car- Car- Carradine, you know, like, he, he, I don't know why, but he seems to get the blame for, like, you know, Bruce losing the lead role of, uh, Kung- in Kung Fu. And it's like, how is that his fault, you know? Right. They just uh, didn't want to cast that's, Bruce. That's, he just got the job. That's right. not his fault. That's executive producer's fault. Right. That's that's totally on the producer's fault. That's not his fault. So it's like, but like it seemed to me like for years he was the bad guy. So I think Chuck just had an axe to grind anyway. If like that was the case, you know, just like yeah, like you know, it's your fault, motherfucker. It's like no, it's not. Like leave the guy alone. Yeah. You know, know. Is it is it true? I heard rumors of it. There's in his contract. David Carradine could could not lose to Chuck Norris, and he could not be shown killed. So that's why he gets away. He doesn't, he doesn't get defeated, but it's kind of a draw, and he runs away or whatever, and then he's blown up, but you've never actually seen him blown up. I didn't hear about that, but that makes sense because I always question the choice on that. Like, it, like you know... Chuck throws the grenade and it falls and then he runs but like you see this explosion and it's like that's a peculiar choice you know because usually you see action movies of the sort and when things like that happen that like, you always get the shot of the bad guy blowing up you know but to have him run away inside and then just have a blowed up it was like you defeated the purpose you know what I'm saying you might right. just let him stand there so that makes a lot of sense if if that's the case. Like Which, that makes a lot of sense why they chose to do that. I mean, I guess he was still a name, but I feel like there's so many flops. I mean, he broke big with uh, Death Race 2000, and he got nominated for mm-hmm. Golden Globe with Bound for Glory. I couldn't tell you a fucking thing he did after that that was successful. So I think you know, six years later, I'm surprised he was able to make these kind of demands on a studio film. Right. Uh, I know he had a uh, boxcar Bertha, and. Um... Uh, he did a Circle of Iron, yeah. um, which was a, a, a film that uh, Bruce Lee tried to for years to make with uh, James Coburn. Um, and yeah, like he just kind of like you know, just like just not. I won't say like obscurity. I'll say more like irrelevancy in his career. Right, you're and talking a catalog I mean, he, of films is not available beyond VHS. That's how obscure it is. Yeah, totally, to- totally. Or like if you do find them on streaming, most of them are like. Uh, available in riff tracks form yeah <laughs> yeah like I remember uh, I'm a fan of uh, Red Letter Media and they were talking about the, like one of his movies he did called Karate Cop with, uh, he basically has American matter of fact matter of fact I was I was watching a film he did called Capital Punishment with uh, that stars Gary Daniels a director video film low budget that was done early in Gary Daniels career and Carradine looks like he shot this like not even in a day, like in a couple hours. He never leaves this office set. Yeah, and he's on the phone the whole time. Yeah, that's the thing and, is. <laughs> well, you read his book, and he destroyed his own career. He admits it because he was like, "I loved art too much. I loved cars too much. I loved drugs too much, and I just spent right. like crazy." And he got divorced a couple times, and that ate into it. So then he found himself not being able to choose a role. He was just taking whatever was offered to him, and that really fucks a career. 
Yeah, totally, totally. It's not like he didn't have his opportunities. I mean, he was in Bird. uh, Well, no, he got nominated for a Golden Globe for North and South, so he should have got a boost after that. He was in Bird on a Wire, should have got a boost after that. And uh, Kill Bill. I've never seen... This is the only person I know that was saved by Quentin Tarantino, but his career was not saved. It did nothing for him. Right, right. He literally went back to just doing director. I mean, although it did, like, you know, there were certain movies like he did before that where it's like they wouldn't even fucking put him on the cover. And then after that, they would put him on the cover, but it was still a director video. Fan. Yeah, I mean, he so may have he got was, a better... He was still like David Carradine. Yeah, I bet, I'm bet. i guessing you know? his daily quote went up from 5,000 to 25,000, but that's it. Right, right. And, totally, and then, of totally. course, he dies in such a strange fashion. And Oh, yeah. It, it's weird to think that Chuck Norris had a better planned career and yet was a terrible actor. Yeah, yeah, totally. Totally. Uh, there, there's... Um... There's a quote attributed to to, to Carradine where, um, I mean, the Chuck where uh, Carradine, I, I, I guess Carradine had said that he was a real martial artist, and Chuck said, uh, uh, "If he was, if he's a real martial artist, I'm a real actor." <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, like uh, Chuck, um, Chuck just uh, he really um, the '80s were really his decade because he really played off the Reaganomics. Yeah, know, well, Reagan that Cannon, like, Cannon really boosted him. Well, what surprises right. me is two of his biggest hits are Code of Silence and Lone Wolf McQuaid, and it's kind of strange that Orion did not reach out to him and sign him to a contract instead of Cannon. Right, I think you know the he he probably preferred Cannon anyway because. Uh, they were just they were just throwing money at him and shit because Cannon really, literally did that. They just like we want this big name, we'll throw money at you. Like let alone you had Michael Dudikoff, you know, and basically right there you could have used all those funds to build him up as actor. You could have had a just a, a, made him a bigger star than he was. Yeah, they were more concerned to getting big names like. Stallone and Chuck and Bronson. Yeah, but Dudikoff uh, actually had the young appeal, which Chuck Norris and Charles Bronson didn't have. And Michael Dudikoff, while not right. a great actor, is a better actor than both of them. And they squandered it because they just gave him the leftovers that abs- didn't go to anybody else. Right, that they absolutely did. That's why I was like, you know, you like all the money you spent like trying to woo Stallone to do over the top. Like you could have used that. And made a quality project with the. I mean, this is canon, so how much quality could it be? Right. Um, if they but, made a, hit, uh, they made a good like, movie, it was an accident. <laughs> right, right. Like, you know, uh, it was something they just picked up for distribution, like a uh, runaway train. Right. Like, oh, and I cannot <laughs> wait. That's next year, I think, right? 85? I can't wait to discuss it. That is, I think, their best film. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They, 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 there was nothing they did that was better than Runaway Train. Wait, was, what year is it? Oh, we're on 83. No, that's 85. Um, you already picked yeah. your four for next year. Oh, what did you say yeah, you want yeah, to do? Yes. You, want to tease, you want to tease the audience now? We got to do Streets of Fire. It just absolutely happens. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, when, when it came to 84, it's a must have. Uh, yeah, we got Red Dawn. Red Dawn, yes. Um, uh, Terminator. Terminator, okay, yeah. And, and, uh, course the big one uh indiana jones and the temple of doom nice so that'll be our next episode kitties uh man there's so many yes. good movies 84 is like you know how they, they they have 
each decade has like a two or three years where it's just like, holy shit, all of these movies came out? We have 82, 84, and 87, I think, are the greatest years of this decade. Right. Uh, just wait till we get to 85, the amount of the great action movies that came out in 85. Yeah. That well, that's like a golden year for comedies, too. Holy shit, all the comedies that came out in 85. I was looking through a list, because that's what me and Jacob do. We do the comedies. And I was like, I think we're going to have to do two episodes on this, because this is way too many. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. Like uh, I, I generally say that the that eighty five was was like my my all time favorite year for action movies because some of the best action movies. Uh, uh, my all time favorite action movie came out at eighty five. Commando. Yes. Uh, <laughs> like I, I I love how it's well known what my favorite action movie. I had a feeling. Um, I don't think I've ever said what my favorite action movie is. I'm not even sure what my favorite action movie is. I mean, I know Die Hard is really high up there, but maybe Untouchables, True Lies. I don't know. We'll find oh, I out. Love, I love, I love We're going to stumble upon yes. it probably. And I'll be like, okay, this is it. This is my favorite action movie of all time. Oh, yeah, totally. totally. <sighs> it's going to be a fun journey, my friend. And uh, it's going to get so good that we're going to have to do double episodes. We're going to have to do, like, okay, four movies this episode. I mean, when we get to the 90s, we're going to start adding in all the stuff that went straight to video. That's awesome. Yeah, I was, I, I was actually thinking about that, like uh... – Oh my god, when we get to the nineties because then like, you know, you have like the boom of director video. Some of the director video stuff in the nineties is just fucking phenomenal. Yeah, we got Imperial. Like, like PM Entertainment. Yeah, yeah. PM Entertainment, New Image, like, oh my god, some of their stuff is so great and so much fun. Yeah, it's gonna be a blast. And speaking of action movies, I can't discuss every single action movie made with him. Made made hold on, I'll say that sentence correct. No, that's right. Uh, every made with Rob. So Rob has a new podcast starting up soon. What's it called? Oh, oh, thank you, thank you. Um, I uh, have decided to, you know, to start the action movie podcast. Like I told you before, um, my Star Trek podcast is, is going on hiatus as we restructure and we, we think things out. But in the meantime, I decided to start a new one called The Action Drunkies. Where the, we sit there, we talk, you know, we have guests come on, and we discuss our all-time favorite action movies from every era, you know what I'm saying, 70s, 80s, 90s, aughts, you know, and more, most recent ones. And uh, I, I'm really happy, like, you know what I'm saying, I've gotten a few people already chiming in, wanted to chime in, it's like, yeah, 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 I'll do it, you know, so... so that uh, is going to be a lot of fun, so stay tuned for that one. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a roundtable discussion, correct? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, about one or two guests. Like, I, I would say it's like uh, like when I was explaining the format to, to, to my co-host, uh, who was also my co-host on uh, uh, Bros on the Bridge, my Star Trek podcast. Um, it's, it's probably more like a, like I, I, I christened it more like a Conan O'Brien show, where I'm Conan and he's Andy Richter, and then you know we we, we talk to the guests, you know. Gotcha. About, that's uh, a good idea. The, yeah, like you know, we talked to the guests about uh, their action movie of like their choice, like something that we picked out to discuss. You so, know what? Uh, yeah, that's the that's the format I've chosen. You got to have me on for the seventies because we're never going to discuss it on this show because it started in nineteen eighty, and I got some gems from the seventies I want to discuss. Oh sure, I would I would love I would love to have you on there, but like you know, anything you want, any film you want to talk about? To Report to the commissioner is the coolest cop movie of the seventies. Mark my words. <laughs> I'll put it on the list. Yes, I want to see. I want to discuss Charlie Varick. I haven't seen it forever. Or oh no, no, I got it. 
What about the three Walter Matthau uh, thrillers that he made in the 80s, or in the 70s? You got Charlie Barrick, uh, uh, Pelham123, and The Laughing Policeman. I'll put them, I'll definitely put them on, yeah. I'm putting them on there right now. I haven't seen them in forever, <laughs> and I would love to rewatch those and discuss them. Absolutely. You're more than welcome to, 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 to be a guest. On oh, the my God. Assault on Precinct 13, people. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Is Warriors? Oh, my God. I, I cannot. Warriors Yes, 70s? Warriors was 79. Yes. 79. So, All right. I'm sold. I'm sold. I'm in on whatever. Mm-hmm. All right. So anything else you, you want to plug before we go? Uh, not to just, uh, you know, as always, you can find me as the Cinema Drunkie on uh Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, as well as my numerous writings on alternateactionmovies.com and actionflix.com, and uh, my my personal blog, thecinemadrunkie.wordpress.com. Um, as I said, my um, my uh, my Star Trek podcast, Bros on the Bridge, is on hiatus, but you know the episodes are still up, as well as uh, my numerous appearances on uh, the House of Screams, while my good my dear dear friend Candy, and uh, the Jacked Up Review Show, by my good friend Cameron. And, yes, those are my plugs. All right, and, of course, everybody, he'll be here every month to discuss the action movies of that year. And uh, check Absolutely. us out on Facebook under Hit Rewind. God, there's so many great movies coming up. Oh, I just yeah, thinking about the list in my head. I, wanna, I can't wait to talk about the ones that no one ever talks about, like uh, Next of Kin. No one ever talks about that, Patrick Oh, Swayze. yeah. Um, have you Next ever seen a movie called Nowhere to Run with Michael Ironside? And, um, damn it, she's in Streets of Fire. She's married to Ed Harris. Amy Madigan. Oh, I, I've heard of that one, but uh, I always get that, like, when, when I hear it, I always think they're talking about the uh, Nowhere to Run with uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, I watch it every Mother's Day because it's got one of the most badass moms in movie history. And no one's seen this oh, one. Oh, I gotta it's check that out. Great. All I right, so that is out. just teasing what's coming up in the next few years, but we are gonna come back with 1984. Bad, I can't read. Wolverines! Wolverines! <laughs> All right, everybody. Have a good night. Good night, everybody. But for right... What? My guts, they were spilling out, and it was called gut-tristophy. What? Uh, gut-tastrophy. That's it. Gut-tastrophy. That's the ticket. Oh, my gosh. That just sounds horrible. It's just Thankfully, we don't have bad time to see it. <laughs> oh, there's a guy just really gassy and bloaty. That's the whole horror movie. Is he gonna fart? Is he gonna fart? Okay, that's all the tension. It's palpable. Mm, yeah, exactly. You know, if anything, just like have it be like Osmosis Jones inside his body, but horror themed. Yeah, oh my God. straight back. Alfred Hitchcock on cocaine. Absorption that's Jones. That's what I'm talking about. That's it. Ah. ah. All right, so uh, five comedies from 1980. What year are we on? 83? We're on 83, right? Yep, we're on. We've gotten to 83. Okay, so I woke up hungover. Uh, I drank too much. Uh, that's how I'm dealing with all of this. I also bought a ventriloquist dummy. Uh, not a ventriloquist dummy, a, a Muppet. Is that the same thing? What's the difference between a ventriloquist dummy and a Muppet? I guess because you're supposed I to see the mouth? Well, as far as... Yeah, no, it's probably based on entry point. No. What? Ew, entry point. I'm pretty sure it's both from the butt. <laughs> yeah, you have to go in rectally. Yeah. Okay, but I think this ventriloquist dummy are like made of plastic and wooden. Muppets are like fuzzy. Yeah, you know, well, also, I think like. it's supposed to be, you're supposed to be completely autonomous when you're a Muppet, 
or a puppet or whatever. When it's a ventriloquist dummy, you're supposed to be sitting next to it, and the, the art is that you're not supposed to see your mouth move. Right? Exactly. That's not even an option yeah. in Muppets. Yes, but I bought one, okay? I have been uh, dealing with this badly. Um, uh, so are some of my coworkers, and these people are fucking... Like, are we talking... So... Oh, gosh. What? Yeah, I know. It's bad. It's really bad. Um, like, are we talking Mel Gibson beaver bad? I haven't seen that movie. I Hopefully, I heard that he chops his hand off, and so no. Is the beaver racist? <laughs> Most likely coming from Mel Gibson. Yeah, I was yeah. wondering. <laughs> no, I have one, but uh, I've been using. Well, you've seen the short films I posted with my little shark puppet. I've seen a few clips, and I'm like, <laughs> it's just it's it's something about it's so freeing. And, and you know what? I'm not to get depressing, but I get the feeling that all of us are going to be on the other side of this virus. So I'm I might be one of them, especially since I'm on the front line with all these people. Uh, that I'm probably gonna right. go, so I just try to have all the fun I can right now. Do so, man. Yeah. You do what you gotta do, but don't lose hope, Michael. I know, I know. Don't lose hope. Uh, if, if anything, I think all the idiots are gonna die off first. You know, uh, we'll we'll see. Here. Yeah, it's uh, uh, what we've been doing is just watching a lot of comedies. We'll we'll discuss some other stuff soon too because I. Do you think it's too early to? talk about hockey season i know they're finishing up last season right like just two months later or three months later i'm behind yeah i'm not sure but i was thinking about doing an episode of hockey movies but i feel like we should wait till the next season launches if we have another jesus this year has been weird baseball games with cardboard audiences and just a button that they press for audio sounds oh the clapping sound oh the ooh sound yay the cheering, oh. nobody throwing. Oh well, at least they don't have the whole, uh, you know, ha- hasslers or uh, you know, people oh, yeah. just yelling out at uh, baseball players. Yeah, you that, know, that, like that, in that Ray is a major league two. Yeah, <laughs> I think I love you, <laughs> mild or, thing. What's the, oh, yeah. Or what's the matter with so and so? He's a bum. <laughs> Well, oh, speaking okay, of okay. Randy Quaid, that'll bring us to the first movie of 1983, the legendary, the ever-growingly creepy movie, <laughs> Vacation. <laughs> National Lampoon's Vacation, I should say. Um, I watch this once every couple years, and every time I watch it, uh, it gets a little darker and darker to me. And boy, this last time I watched it, I gotta say, there are times when Clark is a total asshole. <laughs> oh, hands down. Oh, my God. But besides that meltdown scene... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the way—I oh, mean, of course, the dog dies, and the dog was a pain in the ass. But the way he treats it, he's just like, "Oh, I'm gonna fake happy, you know, fake sadness, but I'm actually secretly happy or whatever." And I was like, "They killed the dog, and they killed the the ant." This movie is bleak and weird. <laughs> uh, the odd thing is, is that they didn't do anything to have killed her. She's just just old. Up and just died yeah. back then and there. But of course, the way he was just like pushing her off, like, "Oh Lord, <laughs> take that little blessing." And then, of course, Beverly D'Angelo is, you know, who plays, uh, oh gosh, why am I blanking on her name? I just watched it, too. Oh, my I God. I, well, I just watched it last Ellen. night. Hel- yeah, Hel- Ellen. Ellen uh, Griswold, yes. Yes, I'm like, why did I blink on that? Oh, yeah, but yeah, Ellen's just like, at the end of it, she goes, please forgive my husband. He knows not what he does. He's <laughs> <laughs> Clearly and clearly in control of what he's doing. Yeah, well, I mean, right. it's it's well, it's a classic tale, and I think we've all seen it, where the parent is looking for something perfect, or you know, the, the thing they're desiring to give. See, the thing is, is he's well-meaning with a lot of his stuff. He just wants to get to every time, every single one of these movies. 
he wants the perfect thing for his family. And it always goes wrong, mostly because he's weak, and he's a dunderhead, and he has low patience. And I, I think that's why uh, Clark Griswold is so much more appealing than a lot of Chevy Chase's characters, where they're smart assholes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and it... <laughs> I will say, like having watched it, having watched that movie again, but listening to the commentary, uh, how Harold Ramis, I think there was one scene where he did have to rein him in, but I mean, it's, it was kind of understandable. But it's like, dude, Chevy, chill out. <laughs> uh, there was that one scene in particular, like you know when they're getting in the car before they leave their house, before they leave their neighborhood. It, um, of course, Harold Ramis was like saying that like, it was like really hot that day. They filmed that that house was like in L.A. And it was triple-digit weather. Oh, boy. And they've done, like, numerous takes. Yeah. Uh, so it wasn't I in Chicago. Un- See, this whole time I thought the movie did was shot for a good chunk in Chicago because that's where John Hughes always sets his movies. Mind you, he wasn't oh. directing this, but he was producing and writing. Oh, of course. And uh, Harold Ramis, uh, in particular, you know, he loves Chicago as well. Him, Anthony Michael, Anthony Michael Hall is from that's Chicago. Right, yeah. John so I'm actually shocked that you told me that it was uh, shot in Los Angeles. I guess... Cost-wise, you could theoretically do this entire movie and not go outside of California. I, be, I bet you they could find locations up and down because California is so strange with uh, having every single thing, every environment <laughs> in one state. Pretty much, mind you, the state's fucking huge. Oh yes, but also, um, yeah, there were a lot of shots in Chicago, and um, although that scene where they're going through uh, St. Louis. And they're trying to find directions. That actually was uh, Warner Brothers Studio. Uh, I recognize it because um, well, I actually took the studio tour. Oh, okay. And of course, Harold Ramis said it. Harold Ramis said it in the commentary. <laughs> That's a classic. But, you know, they redress that set all the time. It's you know you can always tell because it's the one I think they used in Becker and in Friends and stuff like that, where it's um, like two blocks, but it has a curve at the end, so you really can't see the end of it, and they just have a building blocking it. Uh, that way Absolutely. you can have the close-ended uh, neighborhoods so it's easier to film. And uh, that, that's still, I think, still being used today. I remember that being used oh. in the 70s. Oh, yes. it's it, Everything they have there is still being used, which is great. And I just, uh, the way this all started out, um, I, of course, you know, the Lamp- National Lampoon uh, magazine, of course, was the one who produced it. One guy, I think there was like a little short story Involving postcards about taking their family on vacation, and oh gosh, what's the producer's name again? Maddie Robbins, I think. Yeah. Yes, I believe that's it. Um, Maddie Simmons. He goes and looks at it. Shit. Yeah, Simmons. That's Simmons. what it is. Okay. It's Simmons. It's definitely Simmons. Um, he looks at it and he thought it was just a wonderful tale, and they decided to make a movie just based off that. And as you were mentioning, you know, Clark is like kind of weak and like a little bit of a pushover. You can even say that at the beginning when. Uh, when they were trying to tra- uh, get their new um, trade in their old car for their new one, and Eugene Levy, <laughs> it's and Eugene Levy, no less. Metallic P is the funniest thing I have description. Oh gosh! <laughs> oh, what a <laughs> shitty looking vehicle. We had we had a station wagon when I was a kid. I think for a very brief time. I don't think it was Metallic P, but I remember being kind of ugly and weird looking like that. But I could be wrong. I mean, yeah, I, mean, I was like five, so it's hard for me to remember. Right. <laughs> But yes, exactly. I, I, <laughs> my family actually had a station wagon, uh, station wagon too, when we lived in San Bruno. And just just from then on, how Russ is like, "This is not the car you ordered, Dad." He's like, "I'll handle this." 
this is not the car I ordered. So he's just, uh, he ends up caving, and of course, well, they end up smashing his car anyway. Yeah, I love when he goes to reach for his car, just so completely oblivious that he's just like going all the way down to the ground. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And of course, that's the beauty of uh, <laughs> that's the beauty of, the beauty of Clark Griswold. Yeah. He's just a little bit oblivious and slightly dumb, but the best intentions. Is he dumb or is he? Dog. Would you call him absent-minded? I think maybe a little bit absent-minded. Oh, especially with the whole uh, gas can. Yeah. Or trying to find out where the gas tank is on the car, and he actually accidentally. He threw that license plate and almost hit, could have hit that lady. <laughs> he was well, up right next to him. The reason I don't think he's dumb is because, you know, from the third and fourth movie, he talks about he's an executive at a food, a food, a food flavoring company. You can't be a dumbass to come up with those. So I think that he's always in his True. own head. Oh, that's Oh, God, especially when it comes to flirting with women. My God. Oh, boy. <laughs> this this one... introduced Christy Brinkley. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this introduced Christy Brinkley to acting, but oh my gosh. Go ahead, Michael. I just, that's the part that really got under my skin was where he's with his family. He's still doing it. Yes, I know he's frustrated, but that is kind of, I'm glad they ditched in the sequels because that makes his character look really fucking shitty. Yeah. I mean, she she was brought back briefly for uh, Vegas vacation, but that's about it. Yeah. And she she ends up having a baby. (laughs) But the funny thing is, I think one of the funniest moments in this movie was when he's like, you know, you know, June Pointer's uh, song, Sweet Little Boy Sweet, is playing, and she's like, kind of like, trying to be sexy with the ginger ale bottle and all that, and he's just trying to be sexy with the sandwich, but I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that kind of flirting could actually happen to, hey, you know, this, yeah. this is a perfect example of social distance flirting. Where, uh, uh, when, when they're like, uh, why, is the, why are these sandwiches wet? Oh, the dog went to the bathroom on the basket just as he takes a bite and he spits it out, but then and, and then it just keeps chomping away. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. I, I keep forgetting how to pronounce her name, but oh. Imogene Coca, right? Is that who's Aunt Edna? Yeah. Okay. From Imogene your show, Coca. shows. Yeah. yeah. Oh yes. Oh gosh, she was just brilliant. <laughs> it's like, oh, you sent me that fruitcake last year. It made me so sick. I, <laughs> I love, love she's she keeps calling her like, Claude. <laughs> All right, Claude. Yeah. I just love how she's, like, you know, ridiculously, you know, rude the entire trip. <laughs> and, and, of course, this introduces us to Cousin Eddie, um, who disappears from the second movie. And, and, yes, we know, we all know that he's insane in real life. But there's something so magical about his stupidity and just white trashiness in parts one, three, and five. Or one, one three, four. Well, there is a five, technically. Eddie's Christmas Vacation. But uh, it's not good. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much that is. I think that was a representation, a representation of um, the middle class under Reaganomics. Yeah, and uh, yeah, pretty much. Like you know, they thought things were going well for them, and you know, with what jobs they do have. But then you know, it happens. Oh, and Jane Krasinski was the daughter. Yeah, uh, cousin Vicky. What was it? What does she say that's so disturbing? And then Dana Barron just sits there, like with her jaw, just ill. She's like, "My daddy yeah, no, says like, I'm the best French kisser, or whatever, something like that." Oh yeah, she's like, she's like, I, it's like all, all girls French kiss. Yeah, but daddy says I'm the best at yeah, it. That's, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, yeah. fucking fuck. The first one is pretty yeah. skeevy, man. That first movie is just. Hey. 
Yeah, it, it's, it's just again National Lampoon. You can tell them. To, yeah, you well, you can also tell as the, as the franchise changed that more families were enjoying it, so it was no longer R rated. That was PG thirteen, and you know for the rest of the series. Dang it. Yeah, but as far as it goes, oh, but then cousin Vicky is like, you know what's the benefit about being a farmer? All that. Oh weed. yeah. Oh my <sighs> god. Real, <laughs> yeah, they, they they have tons of weed. <laughs> they could have sold that for real ketchup or spoon for the Kool Aid. Or actual hamburger. <laughs> That's right. It's just hamburger helper. Hey, if you got that, you don't need hamburger. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Cherry Chase though, as soon as he bites into that burger and everything just like falls out once <laughs> you know he finds out he's taking Edna to Phoenix. Oh boy! But um, okay, we've got so many cameos in this because we have Harold Ramos already. Then we have Brian Doyle Murray, and I, I something about his character makes me laugh my ass off every time. The way he's like eating that watermelon, so disgusting, and spitting out the seeds. As he's trying to sell on a really nice tent. <laughs> what do you need my address know, for? You know, we send out a mailer. <laughs> <laughs> and then it looks like when it comes to the um, the actual pool, oh, God, it's, it's, it's yeah, disgusting. Yeah, it's disgusting. I've seen pools like it's that. It's got to be a sewage tank. <laughs> the, uh, so uh, we have um, uh, James Keach as the sheriff who pulls him over, and then of course the legendary cameo at the end of John Candy and um, yes. oh damn, what's his name? He was in Batteries Not Included. Uh, he's the the captain in uh, Forty Eight Hours. Shit, big dude, so lovable. I'm gonna look it up. Absolutely yes. Oh no, uh, I know they were describing like how legendary he is when it comes to like you know Broadway, you know film, comedy, sing, song and dance. Oh. Remember he was in, uh, he did a parody of his own role in 48 Hours in Last Action Hero? And he had the steam coming out of his ears. Do you remember that? Oh, no, oh, oh, no, no. Oh, Frank I'm... McRae. Frank McRae. Oh, he's also in The Wizard. I remember that. He was in The Wizard where he's the truck driver that gets him to Reno. Right. Oh, I was thinking of another. Yeah. Oh, I was thinking of the other actor, the guy who plays the uh, Walt Disney character. Oh, yes. What is... I'm going to look this up. Uh, oh, Frank McRae's still alive. Yay! Thank goodness. I was worried. Yeah, I know. I'm going to have to look this up, too. Now I'm curious. Okay. Damn it. Oh, we have to cheat sometimes people with IMDb, but he's always like one of those lovable grandpas. He looked like one of the Smothers Brothers, and I thought he was for the longest time, but he's not. Um, isn't he the guy in Rookie of the Year? Isn't he the guy who owns the team? Am I wrong? Um... Here we are, just being awkward and stalling. I can't find it on Eddie Bracken. Eddie Bracken. Okay, that's what it was. Oh my gosh! Yeah, no, seriously, that guy again, just absolutely. I believe he was in a Home Alone too. He's the one who owned the toy store. Where is Eddie Bracken? Oh, there he is. He's much higher up than I thought expected him to be. Roy Wally World. Wally World. Okay, so after so we watched this movie on television. I never saw it on video, so I didn't know it was R rated. I just taped it off uh, CBS one night. And me and my sister became obsessed with this movie, and we used to make these sandwiches called Marty Moose Sandwiches, which were, and were kind of poor at the time, plus we're kids, we have different palates. It was just two pieces of white bread with mayonnaise on it, the whitest sandwich you could possibly fucking get, with a slice of, yeah. uh, or, or just, you know, a slab of lettuce on it. And just, they called it Marty Moose Sandwiches, just a mayonnaise sandwich. But we just kept calling it Marty Moose, Marty Moose. <laughs> hey, kids! <laughs> Oh, God, that voice, though. <laughs> Sorry, the park is closed. Did he have braces in that? John Candy have braces, or he just talked like he had braces? No, he just talked like he had okay. braces. Again, uh, 
you know, again, worked with Harold Ramis on SCTV. Anthony Michael Hall had braces, and he was a little bit taller near the end of the movie. I'm like, oh, God. Yeah, I noticed that. Head. That was kind of, he's kind of gawky during <laughs> the scene where he's drinking the beer. Or should I say, yeah. in the beer? <laughs> yeah, no, go, go. <laughs> Dude, he played that off so well, like, pretending to drink an actual beer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Rusty! Oh, that's a gag yeah. that recurs through the entire franchise, is where he yells Rusty, but he's, he's always right next to him. <laughs> exactly. Oh my gosh, there was something else I wanted to mention about this movie, too. Um, oh, again, aside, beside, beside all the uh, cameos, the soundtrack. Oh, of course, starting oh, yeah. off with Lindsay Buckingham's Immortal Classic Holiday Road. Who like I thought was sung by Kenny Loggins for years. Oh, sorpresa, sorpresa. Well, I mean, it is in Kenny Loggins' caliber, and he did do the theme for Caddyshack. Yeah, so, so I, it would have been more Yeah, I thought it was, and I was. Uh, it just it didn't even sound that alike if you think about it. Like, if you know their music, it's not the same. But, you know, when you're a kid, you're not that attuned to the differences. And it's always like, you know, like a happy, cheery song. And, of course, Lindsey Buckingham, even though Prince is like my number one favorite artist, he's Lindsey Buckingham's like my favorite guitarist. Yeah, like of all the I really like that song that he and, did Trouble after he was fired from Fleetwood Mac the first time. <laughs> I think he's been fired like three yeah, times. Yeah, the first now. time. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh god. Yeah. No. And what? Two years ago, he got he got yeah. let go again. I'm yeah. like, ah. Well, he wanted to all because he wanted to delay the tour, just for a moment. Yeah. But then no, Stevie, got, Stevie Nicks got pissed and was like, uh uh-uh. uh Oh, these guys get it together. You're like one of the greatest musicians on the planet, and yet you still can't get it together. I know. But anyway, uh, again, great soundtrack. Uh, um, of course, you know, song, Hey Ho, Let's Go, Blitzkrieg Bop by, I mean, Blitzkrieg Bop by the Ramones. I, I always call it by the name of the chorus, because that's how I'm so familiar yeah, with yeah. it, and how some people are familiar with it, too. But um, also, um, Sweet Little Boy Sweet by June Pointer of the Pointer Sisters, and again, my personal, one of, one of, of course, um, one of the most memorable, like, you know, happy ending kind of songs was Dancing in the USA by Lindsey Buckingham. That's yeah, that's another great one too. Yeah, it's a it's a I think the soundtrack gets better in the second movie, but this first one's pretty good. Oh, I I actually yeah, it's been a while since I listened to the Cause, second. Yeah, cuz the second one has all the great songs from the first movie basically, but then it adds in the other ones that one that's in French. Ooh, wee. Oh, Yeah. That's an awesome song. I said no. Oh, you know they're trying on the uniform. We'll get to that. We'll get to that in a couple years. Um Okay, so that's one more thing. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Yeah, Uh, there is one more thing I wanted to say. Listening to Harold Ramis, uh, when they originally did the test audience, uh, there was an alternate ending. Really? Where they don't break into. I mean, he goes and gets the gun, but he goes uh, straight to uh, Roy Wally's house, and demands like an 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 explanation instead of them going to Wally World, except. People weren't happy with that at all. I mean, they were loving the movie up until that part because it's like, wait a minute, they travel all this way to see Wally World, and the audience themselves gets deprived of it. So, yeah, they had to change that around. You and, know what's funny is that wouldn't even happen now because of the internet. You would just look and see that it was, oh, we were closing for these days. Book your days for, you know, for some other time, whatever. But back then, how do you find out that shit? Do you just call a 1-800 number? Yeah, exactly. Or like a newsletter or something if you're part of the whole you know, Disney fan club or something like that. Email. Well, these days, yeah, it's email. Yeah, it's just you just check their website and see what the updates are. And Twitter, fuck, that's all you need is Twitter. You need to go to their website. Of course, you need actual confirmed sources on Twitter. So if they yeah. got a check mark next to it, that means it's okay. <laughs> if it's 
Does it have one of those <laughs> QAnon things? Don't follow that. <laughs> oh, God. Oh no! Those. Oh gosh! I'm glad Twitter's actually shutting them down. Yes, it's getting ugly. Um, so I don't want to take too long, before, you know, on this episode. So I, we probably should wrap this one up, and uh, we'll talk about the sequels, of course, as the, we go through these episodes. Um, what is our second film? I would have to say our second film would be DC Cab, and not a great movie, but an interesting movie, especially from the point of view of that cast and who directed it. Who Joe Schumacher just passed away. This is his. Uh, second film. He had he had written Car Wash before this and got a lot of fame. This is kind of like a semi-sequel to it that he finally got to direct. Because it has that same kind of like music-oriented ensemble stuff going on. Exactly. I was just about to mention as far as ensemble goes, like there's a huge like cast of characters here. Of course, Adam Baldwin, he's none of the he's not related to any of the Baldwins. He's definitely famous for Serenity and Firefly. My bodyguard. He's also in Yes. And Oh yeah, Radio Flyer. All right. Is he the piece right. of dad was, in that movie? I haven't seen that forever. That was him, and he was also in uh, Independence Day. Okay. He was like one of the colonels. Yeah, and uh, we have Gary Busey. Now, I watched. I just watched Big Wednesday because I was trying to think of a surf uh, episode that we could do, and there's really not that many good surf movies. Uh, Big Wednesday is flat out the best surf movie ever made. No questions about it. Uh, but Gary Busey, uh, five years earlier, is super thin and fit because he actually had to surf in the movie. And uh, then you look at him in this, and he's just a bloated, crazy fucking mess. Oh, yeah, he's definitely crazy. I think Gary Busey was kind of playing himself. Yeah, he is Some... a mess in this movie. It's a fascinating mess, but he is just looks he looks like he's... I thought he would die soon after this movie if I didn't know better. <laughs> oh, gosh, yeah. I mean, I, I just love how this movie just starts out how, like, they're all, you know... Okay, oh, like a horror movie, yeah. It's like... Yeah, again, you're just, like, talking over the uh, radio, confirming with the, um, oh, gosh, uh, dispatcher, you know, taxi cab dispatcher, and, again, he's being, after, like, being chased and all that, there are, like, all these other, uh, you know, cab drivers wearing masks, like, you think it's, like, a whole, you know, actual rival game, but, like, near the end of the scene, before the opening credits start, you just realize it's them goofing off, it's, like, even the dispatcher just uh, has to reply to someone on the telephone. It's like, I'm sorry. Currently, all our drivers are busy at the moment <laughs> because of their shenanigans. Yeah. Um, who else? We have Max Gale. From most people know him from Barney Miller. He was Wojciechowski, I think his name was, and he wore a wig in that. So it's kind of weird seeing him without that wig. Uh, he's yes. he's the owner of the. He's a, he's got a lot of heart. I see him on Facebook. I'm actually friends with him on Facebook. We don't talk very much, but we're you know just like connected. And uh, he's a real forward-thinking, uh, positive kind of guy, always trying to save the environment and stuff like that and, and give, you know, working for people's rights. That's what he's kind of done. Yeah. He still acts, but that, he's a big focused on that kind of stuff now. That's, you know, that's really good to hear. And you can tell, even in this movie, he has the heart. And he takes in Adam Baldwin's character because he was friends with Adam Baldwin's you know, character's father. You know, they served together and yeah. thought he'd bring him up and help him out. And he does. And then, of course, you've also got Mr. T. This is who... Bef- is this after the first season of A-Team? I feel like A-Team already started, because it was Rocky Three, then A-Team, and then he did this, I think, after the first season. So he's red hot at this moment. That's why he's, like, on the poster, big time. Right. You know, I think you're right, yeah, because uh, Rocky Three came out in 82, correct? Yeah. 
Okay, yeah. So, yeah, this had to be after the first season of A-Team. Because he was definitely a big seller, Mr. T, oh, God, throughout the 80s. He even had his own cereal, come on! Yeah, had his own cartoon. Um, but Mr. Yeah. T has a lot of heart in this one, too, because he's trying to stop this, like, you know, gangsta pimp, drug-dealing kind of guy out of his neighborhood. And uh, he's just trying for, you know, best as, what is his, his niece he's trying to protect? Yeah, his niece and all the other kids growing up in that area, because he wants them to help out with what... He's trying to help out with what he has. Yeah. Isn't it funny how most people remember him from Rocky Three as a real shithead? But everything else he's done after that has been really positive. I think he's um, like a kind of well-known Christian, and so the stuff he appears in, he wants to be more positive. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Oh, especially after Rocky Three, It's like, gosh, Rocky Three, you just want to punch him in the face. Yeah, I mean, he killed, uh, um, shit. Mickey. Mickey, thank you. Yeah, I mean, he was the reason. Like, he pushed him, and that's what caused his heart attack. Yeah. Uh, um, but anyway, yeah. Char- there's, a, there's a guy I here, did. Charlie Barnett, was a red-hot comedian in the 80s. And he had tried out for SNL and got rejected. That's I, If I remember correctly, he auditioned before Eddie Murphy. And he got rejected, oh, wow. and then Eddie Murphy got added to the show. Uh, but he was uh, in a couple movies, did uh, very controversial stand-up specials. Um the reason he walked out of the SNL audition is because he was expected to read scripts, and nobody knew it at the time, but he was dyslexic, or not dyslexic, but he just couldn't read. He was, um... Oh. Oh, damn it. Why am I having one of these days? The hangover, I can't think of the words. Uh, illiterate. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, so he was a oh, he man. was a park comedian in the 70s and early 80s in New York, and someone saw him and signed him to a deal, and, uh... He was really hot for a while, and I guess he just became too difficult to uh, work with because he went, he couldn't remember the scripts. And um, he got HIV in the late uh, 80s, early 90s, and, and passed away in 96 from HIV. Oh, damn, that's horrible to hear. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. He, was, he had a big heroin problem. But he, he, he's, I think he's a very particular taste. If you're looking for that kind of comedy, and I think he was golden when he was on. When he was on, he could really nail a joke. But I, I just think his uh, constant improvisation and then the heroin just kind of destroyed him. Yes, of course. That's the sad part. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, this movie's littered with comedians, though. Did you notice that? Yes, there's um, Bill Maher, uh, Marshall Warfield, Otis Day, Paul Rodriguez. Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't oh, think I, Bill Maher is not an actor. Bill Maher should never be an actor. He is not good. <laughs> no, he's not. That's why he sticks to what he's doing now in real time. Yeah. But he does do stand up still. Oh, the Paul twins. Right, the Barbarian Brothers. Yes. <laughs> oh man, yeah. They. I just like how their little gimmick. Uh, each one had their own cab. But the Paul twins like would always meet up, and one has to drive in reverse, otherwise it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> Ridiculous. Oh man. Oh, and then there was a a cameo by Irene Cara. Yeah. Big singer. She, she sang Flash Dance. If you uh, if songs. you go on uh, YouTube, they have the music video for this, and uh, oh, wow. she introduces it, and she gets a letter from all the guys at DC Cab, and it has clips of the movie while she's singing. It's a pretty good song. I will definitely have to look into that. This has an excellent soundtrack, too. I mean, you could tell there's a lot of the formula they used for car wash in this. But what I think hurts this movie is car wash was just a day in the life. 
It was just, you know, how their day went, and that was it. This decides to install some sort of uh, kidnapping plot at the end, and I just don't think it works as well. Yeah, I know. I mean, it was just very random. Yeah, you go like three-quarters of the movie thinking it's this kind of thing, and then all of a sudden they throw in that. I'm like, did a studio notes come in and tell them they needed this? Yeah, for real. I'm like, well, just to make themselves appear as, uh, appear as heroes to, you know, get them out of their funk. But then again, finding that violin is what saved them. Right, and, right. You know, I they, that. And of course, the funny thing is, um, the rival uh, Emerald City cab, you know, they all had like these green jackets, you know, showing that they're Emerald City. Then, you know, of course, once they found the violin, you know, there was a rivalry there. And then once they got the violin, they also had like gold cabs, like, I'm like, is a warrior scenario about to play out? Yeah. What's going on? <laughs> oh, and uh, that ski mask guy who always kept robbing um, Marshall Warfield, or Ophelia's character, that was, uh, I, I remember, I, I think I recognized him from Greece. He was, uh, oh gosh, he was the, he was, he was not the T-Bird's rival gang leader. Mm, I've only seen Greece once, so I'm not sure who that is. Sorry. Dennis Stewart, yeah. here he is. Oh, look, Dennis Stewart. There it ski is. Ski mask hoodlum. Oh, you're right. I've seen him as a bad guy. And he's got that really shitty skin. Ugh. He was a bad yeah, guy. Something I watched. What was it? Moonlighting? Um, maybe. Maybe if he's in the first episode. Yeah, the pilot. Okay, yes, yes. It was a pilot episode of Moonlighting. Yes. Ah, uh, gotcha. Grease yeah, no, 2. Watch he's in Grease and Grease 2, but as different characters. Leo and Balmado. Balmudo? Oh, whatever. I know. I'm like, I'm like, wait a minute. Why would he be a different character? Because he always goes out fighting the T-Birds. Yeah, the well, also, he's not exactly the most inconspicuous. Sorry, he's got really that, bad skin. Also, he had the same hairstyle, and he drove... Of course, in part two, he just drives a motorcycle. That's the difference. What is our third movie? <laughs> Our third movie, uh, Survivors. Oh, my God. Okay, so the, everybody's going to argue with me on this one. But I think this is Robin Williams' best performance. It's so frantic, I'll... so broken, so lost. And I you feel for him the whole time because you can see there's damage behind his eyes the whole time. And he wants to be saved, but he doesn't know how to be saved. Right. I will say that in this movie. I, he, As far as, like, Survivors, he's definitely... He, in this movie, the way it correlates with his character, he um, he's like one of those like kind of perio, um, paranoid, uh, not nuclear holocaust, but doomsday. Surv- doomsday yeah, one of those doomsday survivors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, with Walter Matthau's character, he's more like the you know, still surviving day by day, you know. Finding, you know, even losing his business, you know, finding something else to live on until something else pops along. But even, like, should the hard times hit him, he always comes back up. Yeah. You know, a lot of people think the 80s was all success. They think the whole 80s was success. It wasn't because you watch The Toy and you watch this. They're, like, six months apart. The economy was in shit shape around 82, 83. And uh, the scenes are very similar in that they're all out of jobs and they're desperate for anything. And... That's how they become friends. They end up going to, what, a diner together? And that they were both at unemployment. No, all three of them were at the unemployment office because that's where Jerry Reed was, our, our nemesis, sort of. Um, Jerry Reed, uh, that, yeah. Robin Williams, and Walter Matthau are all at the same unemployment office. And they're eating at a restaurant. They're talking. And then uh, uh, 
Jerry Reed comes Jerry to Reed. rob it, and that kind of sets everything in motion because they're all broken, but they all take it differently. Exactly. I mean, Jerry Reed's, of course, you know, the more aggressive criminal type who will, you know, do what he can to get by illegitimately. And then, of course, Robin Williams, just the way just the way he plays his character out, you know, doing his usual shtick um, after that ordeal, uh, you know, goes out, starts buying guns, then shows him off to his uh, fiance. And the way he just describes him. Again, just takes me back to like you know all the little snips and like little one-liner uh, quips. Yeah, yeah. Like in between each description, they just get me. Like, but the like when he's talking about with the bayonet. Uh, yeah, and, and, and again, he's I, explaining it, uh, and he's not really showing off. What he's trying to do is explain it to her, sell her on the idea the way the guy at the gun shop sold him on the idea. That it's okay and you need this. And he's trying to convince her that he's not crazy and desperate. That she needs to go along with him. But he knows he's losing her. And that's exactly what happens. Because she's like, you have to make a choice between these and me. And he makes the wrong decision. And that drives the rest of the movie. Where he just goes down this tunnel of desperation and, and sadness. Yes, exactly. I mean, he goes into that whole, like, training camp thing, living on that property by this, like, libertarian, you know, scam artist, you know, paranoid dickhead. <laughs> but um, just the way that plays out, like, him going throughout all the training, it's just, again, very cartoonish and comical. Like, he starts prepping to shoot a machine gun, and then he's, like, spinning around as he's trying to hold on to it. Yeah, I mean, they find a lot of good gags. I feel like he improved a great deal of them. But I think, I think the more of the point is... What Robin Williams is going through and what Walter Matthau is trying to help him with is to understand his pain. But he makes the wrong decision. He goes to that camp. He gets away from everybody. And now it's like a cult. And all he's doing is listening to these same people in this this militia group. And I feel like this is a prescient day because we're talking today in the news that the NRA is going to be, you know, try to be sued out of existence because they're just another yes. cult. They're just another call, and, and, and using broken, sad, angry people to their benefit. They don't care about your gun rights. They just know that's Fraudul what the money is. Yes. Fraudulent charges. That's what it is. Yeah. I, and, of course, at the end of the movie, uh, heck, even uh, Reed, what was his first name? Brandon? Jerry Reed. Jerry Reed. Yeah, Jerry Reed. Um, oh, gosh. I have to mention that little uh, moment from this movie in a minute. But, yeah. Jerry Reed, Walter Matthau, and um, Robin Williams. Of course, Robin Williams is hesitant at, at first due to the fact that he got his training there and he had some part of loyalty to them. But they were trying to convince him that they're all just like kind of being scammed and calm. And in the end, you find that out because uh, in that briefcase, you know, it's not like you know any plans of survival. It's just all these like you know stocks and bonds, you know receipts uh, for ownership of all these um, businesses and stocks. You know, he's pretty much making it off with their money. He's, again, taking advantage of their fear and desperation yeah. and exploited it and manipulated it to giving him money so he can make himself rich. Yeah, and then Jerry Reed, through these circumstances, they all realized that they just made, you know, except for Walter Matthau, made the wrong decision dealing with, you know, their, their need for money. And they get along and they work together to get out of that mess. Oh, exactly. I know. And then even at the end, you know, Robin Williams is just like kind of a bro broken right there. And Walter Matthau comes in. It's like to, to console him, even if he's like taking his clothes off and everything because he doesn't because he's losing his identity. He's lost everything about him. 
And Walter Matthau just like consoles him. It's like he's that one stable friend that we all need to listen to. Yeah. And he convinces him to come back with him. He's like, here, have, wear the coat though. I have another coat on. It's cold. The, uh, uh, I want to. I just. Go ahead. Okay, but that moment I wanted to mention between um, Jerry Reed and Robin Williams when they're having that little shootout. Robin Williams, like it, as he's trying to load up his gun, he's like, "So and so, you're going to be annoyed with me with this. This is embarrassing." But I brought the wrong bullets. So could we put a timeout on this? And of course Jerry Reed, he's just kinda of going along with it. He's like, For sure, I'll let you go back and get your bullets, but he's preparing to shoot him, you know, to psych him out. Yeah. And then Ron's like Ron Williams is like, I really appreciate it. You're a very you're a very uh, well thoughtful guy. And then Jerry Reed shoots at him and misses. And then Ron Williams just yells, Liar <laughs> Uh, I want to give kudos to uh, Kirsten Weigert, who plays Walter Matthau's daughter. She's extremely good. She doesn't act anymore. She uh, does music. But she was the very first Annie. Before it went on Broadway, when they were just doing it like in smaller markets to test it out, she was the very first Annie. Oh, the one with Carol Burnett? No, no that's the movie. We're talking uh, off-Broadway. when You know when they're kind of just oh. starting it before it gets to the big time, when they're workshopping it, kind of? So she was the very first oh. one. She's a musician by camera. She's a... God dang damn it. So, yeah, if I remember correctly, she was with the Red Hot Chili Peppers for a couple albums, I think. Oh, that's awesome. Music, yeah. She worked with Fishbone and Red Hot Chili Peppers uh, on Mother's Milk, One Hot Minute, and uh, two of the Fishbone albums. And she has her own music label. Um... Wow, chosen as one of the top 100 albums of the year by night by Playboy by 1988. Cool, yeah, she's still a she's still a musician. She's in a band called New White Trash. <laughs> that's dope. That's a New White Trash. That's not a very good name. <laughs> no, no, but I'm like, um, I'm hoping they take it in a positive light. <laughs> but yeah, again, I felt like this movie did have the heart. Oh gosh, Walter Matthau in particular. Well, it's pretty much the heart and soul of that group. Yeah, this is during a rough period for him. After this, it's a decade before he has another hit, where he just flop after flop after flop, and no one knew where his career was going. But thank God, grumpy old men came along. Oh yes, chaining up with Jack Lemmon again. Oh yeah, wonderful. Um, what is the next film? Uh, it was a CBS special, uh, packing it in. Yes. Now, I, there's no way this was actually designed for television. The way this is, this is a bigger budget. It's got a pretty good cast. I have a feeling this was a theatrical, meant for to be theatrical, but for whatever reason, maybe the studio got cold feet and they sold it to CBS. This would happen from time to time. Like a dozen movies a year, we end up getting sold to a network because it was more profitable to them to sell it to that. And they got, well, we'll retain the video rights, you know, and that's how they made their money back instead of, you know, spending all that money on marketing and shipping the film out and stuff like that. If they weren't sure it was going to be a hit, and um, this this goes really well with I think Vacation because it's another one of these well-meaning dads who does dopey things, gets in over his head, and uh, it, you know, and just working your way out of it. Exactly. Yeah, that's how the scenario was. I mean, he of course it starts off with um, his. Oh gosh, yeah, Marley Ringwald was in this. This was like one of her first roles, wasn't it? Yep, it was right after Facts of Life. But before, ah. before uh, sixteen candles. Okay, and then that one sci-fi movie she did. Oh, you know what? I don't know. This that might have came. Mm, I don't know. That might have been before. I'm not sure. 
No, she looks younger mm. in this. I bet you that was it, Space Hunter, uh, Adventures in a Forbidden Zone, or something like that. That one, I bet you, was after this. Okay, yeah, that was def- that definitely could have been it. But um, you go ahead and tell the, the plot because this is a very hard to find movie. It's never been beyond VHS. We found it on YouTube. It even had some '80s commercials too, which made it all the more. Yeah, that was so much fun. I love when they leave the commercials in. <laughs> yeah, no, I do too. It's I'm like, oh wow, this is definitely '80s. Ugh. I mean, I only remember the early '90s stuff. And anyway, well, the plot is uh, this family man. Of course, it starts off, um, you know, LA suburb. You know, neighbor finally admits that he's moving out because he's sick of it. He's moving up to Oregon, Oregon, but they call it Oregon. Yes, like it's some kind of fancy. Like it's some fantasy world. Yeah, well, no, no. And, it's, we have bumper stickers everywhere that tell you how to pronounce it properly. I also pronounced things wrong when I first moved here. I used to say it's the Willamette River, but I, I Willamette. No, wait. Shit. No, it's, it's pronounced Willamette. I pronounced it Willamette. And everyone's like, what the hell are you talking about? There's a street called Cooch Street, but it's spelled Couch. I still don't understand that one. To me, it's still Couch, not Cooch. No, no, no. It's definitely couch. I don't care what they say. <laughs> C-O-U. Those couch would be two O's, not O-U. Exactly. Silly people. Uh, anyway, so he moves up to Oregon, and, of course, after dealing with the harsh L.A. environment and meeting his uh, daughter's boyfriend at the time, who's like this, you know, L.A. punk, uh, yeah, he decides, like, you know, that's it. Oh, yeah, the green sludge. And oh, yeah, the, ba- yeah, the house um, is turned to shit. Pipe, the pipes, yeah. So, like, that's it. We're moving. We're going up to Oregon. And, you know, of course, them going up to Oregon, they become somewhat autonomous, you know, living up uh, more in the mountains, kind of away from civilization, kind of adjusting to this whole farmer, uh, autonomous farmer, somewhat farmer life, you know, having their own chickens and everything, you know. And just the way it plays out, you know, they become a little bit accustomed to the life, but... Then they realize some of their neighbors who are just, of course, you know, kind of... Crazy. Like in the previous movie. <laughs> yeah. Crazy, militaristic, you know, doomsday prepper kind of people. But one of them, of course, ends up turning up to be a total thief. <laughs> Heck, even near the end of the movie, it's like, you know, like, where'd you get those chickens from? You know, <laughs> They're my chickens. Raining heavily. It's like, all right, that's it. You both out. <laughs> Of course, our, our houses are up in the mountains, uh, so high up, and they're washing away from like how hard it rains. Yeah, that's the thing is <laughs> that uh, if you're going to move to Oregon, they had never been there before. They had no idea where they're moving. Like their friend found the house, and they just went ahead and bought it, you know, sight unseen, um, and didn't realize it's really in the boonies. Like they go to that little town that's absolutely nothing. Like, oh no, this is a busy metropolis compared to where you're going to be living. And I've been through towns when we were searching for VHS ten years ago for the business. Oh man, we went to some weird, tiny little nothing towns, and they look like yeah. just a bustling city compared to where they live in this movie. But it's always shocking yeah, to me they didn't hard. bother to like go to a somewhat bigger city. Like, why not go to Portland? You know, back then in the '80s, it was really cheap. Uh, go to Portland mm-hmm. first. You know, plant yourself there, and then look around. But no, they're so dumb that they just went ahead and bought it in sight unseen, and that's what gets them into so much deep shit. Exactly. Yeah, because I mean, what they didn't even have a toilet. Yeah. At first, when they moved in, <laughs> yeah, they, just wanted, no, they no, just wanted a shelter. Right, there's no electricity, if I remember correctly. I don't know how they made phone calls. They had to, you know, they had to go into town to get any supplies, but everybody would wipe out the supplies so you couldn't get shit. And uh, exactly, and they, uh, and it won't stop raining. And yes, it rains a lot here. And there's some cities that are just overwhelming. Like I lived in Lincoln City, where it rained 100 inches a year, which is mind-boggling. 
Um, here, I think it rains 30 inches or 25. That's not horrible. Now, what does it rain there? Like half an inch? <laughs> Depending, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it hardly ever rains in Napa. It's so weird, the juxtaposition between where I live and where you live. Um, but it just won't stop, and it turns into this massive, massive shit. Uh, Richard Benjamin, who directed the movie we discussed in the last episode, uh, My Favorite Year, and uh, his wife, uh, Pauline... Shit. I do this all the time. Um, the uh, Pauline, uh, Paul Apprentice. That's it. Paul Apprentice. Um, they're the stars of this, and they had previously been in a minor hit called Saturday the 14th, which is a parody of Friday the 13th, sort of. Um... But uh, they use and abuse them, and they end up having to rely on them now because there's how their house is the only one that's like not covered in flooded water or mud or something like that. <laughs> so it's a comeuppance at the end. Pretty much, yeah. The other ones looking up at them, looking at them for guidance. And well, in the end, they all kind of go back at that uh, neighbor who took uh, everything from everybody, and having to move back to LA. And then once they move back to LA. You know, they realize they, like, do miss it and end up going back all the way up to Oregon in their uh, RV uh, trailer. Yeah. <laughs> well, it seems funny is that there's that point where he starts to lose his mind and he's like, I need a gun. I need to start burying our food in the dirt, you know, and stuff like that. Just, like, going nuts. And you're like, what the hell is going on with him? Exactly, because someone's actually been stealing his stuff. Yeah. And, of course, one of his neighbors and friends did and they admitted to it and then they were having... Uh, discussing it over dinner and they were like kind of hugging it out but at the same time they just really wanted to punch each other in the face yeah. how was that bird I heard it was really attention. gamey no it wasn't gamey <laughs> <laughs> exactly oh man <laughs> I just like how um, what his neighbor's wife straight up you know how in LA she was all about like the Gucci and the, like all the fancy clothing and whatnot. but up there she came a little bit more hippie and you know in a pottery and everything Complete different adjustments. Yep. Total 180. Um, so I think that's a good find. It's a really rare lost movie. Um, it's on YouTube, like I said. Uh, what is our fourth film? What? I thought that was our fourth film. Wait, what do we got? We had Vacation, DC Cab. Shit, you're right. Vacation, DC Cab, Survivors, uh, Packing It In. Was there a fifth one? Was there a fifth there one? There was a fifth one. What's the fifth one? Oh my one? gosh, why did I forget? I watched it on Voodoo. I know that much. God damn it. Uh, <laughs> Why do I take notes? We're so unprofessional. It's ridiculous. Hold, please. We did take... Sorry, we're having technical difficulties right now. All right. Thank you for holding. Um, while our expertise technicians worked on the problem, I have no idea what I'm fucking saying. <laughs> the last film is The Man with Two Brains with Steve Martin. Oh, gosh. Was Carl Reiner the one who directed this? Yeah. Rest in oh, peace again, Carl Reiner. We got some loss in this episode. Some people are really gone. I miss them already. Yeah, they were. They were, however, very old. Uh, Phil Schumacher was eighty, and Carl Reiner was like. Yeah, I was thinking. I was thinking a lot about. Sorry, Rob Williams, but yeah, everybody else. They kind of lived a long, full life, but um, yeah, uh, the Mountie Brains. Now, I wanted to suggest uh, Dead Men Don't Wear a Plaid for the last episode, nineteen eighty-two, but I cannot get to that movie. I've tried so many times, I just don't get the rhythm. Same actor, same director, and I just don't get it. But And that's a spoof of gangster movies, but they inject themselves into clips from old gangster movies. I just don't think the flow is there. This one is a spoof of mad scientist movies, but they don't use clips. It's just like a, a more uh, like airplane. Absolutely, yeah. It's just all these like ridiculous jokes. Hafar! Stereotypes. <laughs> <laughs> the wording alone. 
Exactly. Just try to pronounce his last name. Kathleen Turner the entire time. Again, just a um, Black Widow. Basically. Yes. Devious yep. and crazy. Yep. And I can't believe this movie flopped. This almost derailed his career. If it wasn't for the next year with um, uh, uh, damn, All of Me saving his career, I mean, I don't know where he'd be right now because this flopped and it's so fucking funny. Jacob, I'm sorry. While you were out, you were you were in a coma for so long. We didn't know what to do, so we took your brain out, and uh, we replaced it with Nicolas Cage's brain. So you're now going to sound like Nicolas Cage all the time. I'm so sorry. Oh my God, this is worse than my movie. Brain off. <laughs> brain off. <laughs> I've now switched brains with a normal warehouse work uh, forklift driver who lives in Napa, California. Next to his uncle, Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's nonsense. <laughs> yeah, this uh, this has Kathleen Turner as a femme fatale, and uh, she's yeah a black widow, and she uh, falls in love. She gets Steve Martin to fall in love with him uh, with her, and uh, she's trying to kill him, and he falls in love with a brain that has telekinetic powers, but only with him, voiced by Diane Keaton. It's so ridiculous. It's so much fun. It is. It's absolutely mind-boggling. And, of course, great uh, cast of uh, actors. Uh, we've got David Warner as the uh, brain specialist, who doesn't hire the guy who could kill these people in the elevator, but he just buys the brains from him to help with his research. Yeah. <laughs> and it's <laughs> Merv Griffin as the killer. <laughs> Talk show host Merv exactly. Griffin. <laughs> Exactly, and yet nothing happens to Murph Griffin in the end, even though he's identified. Like, oh, no, that? I was wrong. It's not. It, it was Sissy Spacek is the voice of Amel de Ham. I am Amel de Ham. Amel de Ham. Well, they do have very soft, distinctive voices. So it was, was kind of hard to tell. I thought it was Diane Keaton, too. But, oh, man. Again, it was just so, it, again, just absolutely sweet when they're carrying each other. Or, Better yet, like, what's the funniest moment? One of the funniest moments to me is when he's talking to his wife because he's thinking about moving on. Like, please, darling, if there if, if there's a sign to not go through with this, please show me. And it's like, no, <laughs> you hear the painting scream, no. It's just like everything around him, everything around him is just like breaking and breaking. And he's like, any sign at all after it all ends. Nothing. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when uh, Kathleen Turner fakes that she's going to jump off the the building, and oh, he climbs out to her, but the thing crumbles, and he uses his hands as suction cups. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, I love how. Or when he like realizes she's cheating on him, and he's like, you know, a citizen's divorce, and he does this like weird little hand mode gesture and this weird thing. Like what? <laughs> All this weird battle to, to finalize the divorce. Like, oh my. The uh, the uh, the fact that the whole set looked like cardboard and actually was cardboard. <laughs> oh, yeah, that. We got to replace the doors again. Oh. Damn it. <laughs> but at the interior decoration of uh, David Warner's uh, hotel room was that of a old castle, you know, to befit the mad scientist. Yeah. Do you have that little thing that goes... Zzz, zzz. Yeah, you know, it's, you know what's funny? Then, of course, is uh, my boss's name. That's that's my boss's name, and he has no idea who David Warner is. 
I was like, the actor, David Warner, he's wow. been like a ton of movies. I showed him a picture, he goes, no, nah, I've never seen him. He was in Titanic, like the one of the biggest movies ever made. No, nah, i never heard of him. He has your name, you don't know. <laughs> you should know. It's like, you know, not knowing who Michael Bolton is when your name is Michael Bolton. <laughs> <laughs> At least it's not that, I'd be ashamed. <laughs> My name was David Warner, like, that's kind of cool, man. He was in Waxworks, I yeah. love that movie. Oh, wow. Oh, there was something else. I, I thought one of the funniest little gags to it, like um, that machine was uh, made from parts by an old arcade machine, so they had to use quarters in order <laughs> to get it running. <laughs> yeah, this this isn't a mile a minute uh, gag like airplanes uh, and Naked Gun is. It's, it's a spoof, and there, there are gags in it, but it seems to be more based around the story, and the humor is behavior-based instead of like boom, 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 boom joke, 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 joke. Exactly, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, that's exactly how... Uh, you're right. Airplane did find it. It was like getting a machine gun of last. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm like that. Now, now, Carl Reiner would attempt that. Uh, one of his last movies was uh, Fatal Instinct, where he tried to do parody of, like, you know, the whole Fatal Attraction and Basic Instinct genre, you know, the, the femme fatales. Like, a continuation of yeah. Kathleen Turner's character. It's okay, but it's not great, and I feel like he missed the mark because he was trying to ape someone else's style instead of his own. If he stuck with his style, I'm sure it would have been a lot funnier. Yeah. But, I mean, he still has success. I mean, after this, he does Summer Rental and uh, All of Me and Summer School. And those are that's a trifecta right there. That's a great trifecta. Oh, gosh. Yes, I love Summer School. I had no idea what this. Yeah, he's, a, he's in the I very did. beginning of it. He's the teacher. And we'll probably discuss it on this show when we get to 87. But he's the teacher at the beginning that wins the lottery and then uh, goes, screw that. I'm out of here. That's. <laughs> <laughs> Now that's definitely what Carl Reiner would do. Yeah, he's like, lots of people win the lottery, win contests, they stay here as a teacher, go, people are friggin' morons! <laughs> I have to rewatch that, it's been too long. Yeah, it's in my voodoo. Oh, man. What isn't in my voodoo? It's getting ridiculous, almost to a thousand movies in my voodoo. Well, I'm glad you have One Crazy Summer on there. Yeah. Oh, man. It's going to be weird. Again, you know, when we get to like 85, 86 and stuff like that, we did episodes already about some of these comedies. And we'll just, I guess we'll just take the old episode and edit it in with new stuff because I don't want to, I mean, I love Back to School, but I don't want to discuss it again. So we can just do other comedies from like 1985, 86, whatever, and slap that in. Exactly. There's always a good substitute. There's plenty of, there was plenty of movies in the 80s. Yeah. Well, you know how we did, uh, we did the Chevy Chase episode uh, years ago when we first started because uh, we were celebrating the 1985 anniversary when he did Fletch, uh, European Vacation, and Spies Like Us. And then I was looking, I was like, well, maybe there's not that many comedies left that we can discuss. I looked at the list and go, oh, no, there's plenty. <laughs> yes. Lo and behold, the yeah. power of... I, I really power. think 83 is the beginning of the new school of comedy. Yes, we had Caddyshack and, and stuff like that, but everything hits a pinpoint here in 83 where the studios are like, look, we got to start putting more money into these comedies. Because they're low budget, but they make tons and tons of money. Exactly. Because that's, that's what I was noticing as these movies were progressing. Like, something different was coming along. And 83 definitely seems to be that pinnacle. Yeah, and then 84 changes everything because the teen comedy is no longer copying Porky's and Animal House. It's now going to be the new school of John Hughes where it's more depth and, and the, the characters get better. So the comedy is uh, um, yeah. higher than the nudity and the nudity just kind of dissipates and goes away. Yeah, like the nudity is just like a, 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 kind of what ends things. Like you can't even, it's like even though, yeah, in 16 Candles you do see some breasts but it's like, what else? 
I couldn't really sexualize it, even though, like, you know, one of the kids, well, of course, Anthony Michael Hall's character was, like, you know, his objective was sex. Yeah, but in not in the same way. Some of these sleazy fucking, eventually, I think by 85, they were all, like, straight to video or, you know, Playboy Channel and stuff like that because nobody wanted to go to the theater and see it. So, you know, that, that genre is almost dead by 85. And uh, so comedy's changing. So now we're getting all the, the Saturday Night Live guys and the SCTV guys. These are the new guys. They're taking over, you know, and uh, it's going to change the face of comedy for the next decade. And then we'll have the next wave of SNL. So if, from here on out, it's basically – comedy is basically ruled by comedy groups. So, you know, because we're always going to have SNL, of course, but we're going to have, like, the state and kids in the hall – and um, uh, Mr. Show, Mad TV, you know, there's gonna be a heavy influence throughout the years on on movies because of these guys. Exactly, and honestly, they had the best influence. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so that is the end of this episode. Uh, these are the comedies of 1983 we recommend. Um, I feel like there's one that we missed, but uh, oh, Pirates of Penzance. But not, what's that? Oh, Trading, Trading places. places, that was it, that was the one Because we did an Eddie Murphy episode, not you and I But me and a friend of mine did an episode of Eddie yeah. Murphy when we oh, yeah. I know, I, I, I know you you're, you're, like, I'm sorry, you're probably pissed I apologize No, 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 not at all, because I, I knew you had discussed it before So I was like, I'm wondering like, Okay, so that's probably what's happening Yeah, so, so Eddie Murphy's not going to come up in the series Until the 90s Because we discussed everything up to coming to America um, And I don't like Harlem Nights I'm just not going to, I don't like Harlem Nights It's not funny Great production. I have not. Brilliant cast. Just not funny. I have not watched it. I'll give it a watch. Yeah. Um, so, Jacob, anything you want to say before we go? Well, I definitely would recommend all the movie survivors. Again, uh, it being Robin Williams, you can never go wrong. Now, apparently, uh, no, critics hated it, though. It got a 7% on Rotten Tomatoes. And I'm just like, I, you guys don't. Maybe the subtext means more now. Because of what we've seen with right wing behavior, maybe the, maybe the movie's more important now than it was in 1983. Because it, back back then, everybody was like rah rah, you know, Republican Ronald Reagan, you know, kind of th- thought pattern. Exactly. Uh, but heck, even Ronald Reagan admitted that owning an AK-74 for home defense is just over the top and you know excessive. Yeah. It's like yeah, handguns and shotguns are like more ideal and betterly uh, strategically and less collateral. You know, especially you know, damaging whatever your property and all that, and also, shit, the, I did it again. So yeah, packing it in is a fun TV movie. That's not the, oh. it's not good quality though. It's taken straight from a VHS. Uh, Man with Two Brains is top notch silliness from Steve Martin, and uh, I keep forgetting the fourth film. Well, of course, Vacation's a classic. You can't deny that. Uh, DC Cap. DC Cab, that one's the one I'm on the fence by. There's some interesting stuff in it, but it's not. It's it's a little incoherent. I overall enjoy it. Yeah, I mean it's fun, but, yeah, but like when you start thinking about the flow of the plot, plot, you're like, uh, I don't know. Yeah, the kidnapping plot is what definitely threw it off. Yeah. However, what I do want to say about Rotten Tomatoes, I'm like, uh, I, there are times I can't agree with them, but then there are times where I'm like, okay, you're being way too nice, just as you most likely grew up with it, especially. Yeah. Uh, the Stan Raimi Spider-Man films, I thought the scores for them were too high, uh, along with the uh, prequel trilogy of Star Wars. Yeah, Those, but I a lot of it is just a separation of time, what you miss. I mean, they hated the thing. It, you know, they said it was vile and that it was, it was too disgusting to be in theaters, and how dare they release that in the summer of E.T. It shit happens. People change their mind. 
Exactly. Plus, I'm like, plus the thing is like one of the best horror films of yeah, all time. Yeah, and it's it, it happens. Yeah. And it's still thought provoking. Yes. Come on. <laughs> I was like, I'm. Yeah, I, I, I say of all the movies that you need to go discover, especially because of the times we're in right now, uh, the Survivors is the one that has like, wow, this really knew how there's every day there's a sucker born and there's another person born that's ready to take advantage of that sucker. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, plus, again, it's one of Williams' <laughs> funniest performances. I just love it. <laughs> you dick! You lied! <laughs> you liar! Exactly the way you said that. All right, so that is it, everybody. Uh, be excellent to each other, and Jacob, send us out. All right, namaste and good luck, my friends. See Party on, time. dudes! <laughs>